supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me. She hated me. Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Miss Drossel, have you ever seen the murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're, you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. Getting right into it today because we want to econ- economize as much time as we can as possible. We got a big movie, yeah, but big for us, anyway. Yeah, and we're truncating it into this this little old podcast. Welcome back to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, that's Jay Blake. Hello. Uh, that's Dion Baya. Hi. We're here today. Uh, we don't have any business to talk about, right? No. Uh, thanks for everybody, new listeners. Hello from. We got new listeners coming in. Yeah, all the time. Uh, welcome. Welcome. Salutations. Uh, grab a, a beanbag chair and uh, sit on we're down. The, we're during the summer of 16. Yeah, 2016. We got a lot of crazy movies coming out. We, we just had our first movies. double feature. Yeah, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2, Secret of the U's, uh, two weeks ago, and that's been doing real fun. That one was a, that one just knocked us out. We slept for like 12 hours <laughs> after that, you know? It's like that's the story where, like, the light comes up, and then we slept all day, and, like, mom's up making bread. You going to get up at any point? Jesus, it sounds like a brewery in here. Dinner, you know? two days late, yeah. later, we wake up. And then you get all depressed because when you're waking up, the sun's going down, and you're like, oh, I'm not a failure. <laughs> And then uh, we got some things coming up. Yeah, we got some fun things coming up. Planning maybe even more of a curveball than today's episode for next week, possibly. Yeah, but this is still. But a, it'll uh, be a fun. It'll be a fun one. Uh, oh, if we f- do for it for the fourth. For the fourth. For the old July the fourth, the Independence Day. Um, <laughs> yeah, for our, weird. Our, <laughs> an our, odd choice, but there's logic to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm a fan of it. You know me. But today we do we do have an odd choice, I guess. But at the same time, this is uh, someone near and dear to your your heart, near and dear to our hearts. And we love this genre, we love um, the music, and we love everything about it. And this is a stellar example of the um, the lovingness that we have. Yeah. So and that's it. Good yeah. night, guys. Good night, guys. <laughs> Seeing you soon. Take care. Thanks. We love it. Yeah. We're rushing today because we want to get it all in. So we're gonna we're just we're gonna cut all the uh, the BS out of the way right now. I'm cutting it with a knife. Okay, let's just jump so right we're in. We're doing probably worldwide Dario Argento's probably biggest movie. I would say in here in America, Suspiria is probably better known. La, la, la. <laughs> but uh, this movie internationally, yeah, Deep Red is probably his biggest film and probably most thought of as being his best work. We're yes, nineteen seventy-five, Deep Red, Italian title Profondo Rosso. Profondo Rosso, or it was released over released over here as the Hatchet Murders. The Hatchet Murders, where there's only one 
murder by hatchet. Yeah, but it's the hatchet murder. <laughs> it's like really like a cleaver murder. Yeah, it was so. a, yeah, but meat cleaver. But they said they just it got dubbed. The French title is the Shivers of Angst, and the German title is the Color of Death, which is very interesting. Yeah, the the, the American. Well, like, the alternate titles is always kind of, like, sometimes very interesting, often a weird thing, like Tenebre or Tenebre. Another Dario Argento movie. That's a Dario Argento movie from the early 80s. Um, the American title is Unsane, which really? is kind of a great that's, title. That's a really good title, <laughs> actually. It's kind of a great title. You know, I mean, even The Hatchet Murders is a good title. <clears throat> I, Unbeknownst to me, I uh, had got this from Netflix thinking it was a different movie, and then I started watching it, and it was like a... <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen this Yeah, it was, it, was just a, it was just a <laughs> shitty work print, like... That was like transferred to DVD, and I was like, "This looks oddly familiar, doesn't it, honey?" <laughs> you know? um, I was like, "I've seen this movie," and then it was cut out. Phenomenon here was called Creepers. Yeah, another Argento. All these are all Argento titles. Um, but the best, well, I mean, there's uh, some great other Italian titles, like I think The Beyond, which is a Lucio Fulci movie, was called Seven Doors to Death, I think, or yeah. Seven Doors. That's to a great death. movie that I hopefully, I hopefully, I hope we'll cover one day. We already did Fulci Zombie, uh, which is a big hit for us. Um, but we're talking horror this week. We're talking uh, specifically Italian horror this week. Yeah. And then if we want to zoom in on Italian horror this week, we're talking about Ar Dario Argento. Yeah. Who, um, and we're talking about a specific f faction of Italian horror, which is arguable. We could argue. We could do a whole episode arguing whether a giallo film is horror or thriller. There's that word again, giallo, <laughs> which we haven't said yet. We did a whole um, sidecast some years ago on what giallo is, and I... I would be remiss if we, I didn't bring that up. But at the same time, I think we shouldn't just say, go check that out. We yeah, should talk yeah. a little bit about what, what a giallo is. In a nutshell, basically, uh, giallo is, it means yellow in Italian. And it's a, it's a certain type of film that developed out of uh, the popularity of, of a certain, um, of, of pulp mystery novels, murder mystery novels that became popular in uh, Italy and I don't know, the 50s, definitely yeah. the 60s, into the 60s. And one company would release them all. And some of them would be like literally like Italian uh, adaptations of like an Agatha Christie or Poe or something uh, of that nature. And then uh, eventually like original stories started to be written. Because and, of the popularity. And so it became like this, a little bit of like this little phenomenon where these pulp novels became very uh, popular and then, but they were being printed. But the, on, right? the company that released them all would print would uh, the covers would be put on this like yellow paper. Like the design of it would be a yellow cover with like a like with the, the title and a picture, maybe a picture. And so they all had these yellow covers. And so as a uh, kind of a shorthand, they would they started to call them. Uh, a, a giallo or gialli mean being plural yeah like the gialli is like the books you know the, the these kinds of books in uh, plural so this became kind of a big a bit of a uh, of a thing they they were popular and then in the 60s of course we had kind of like the the godfather grandfather the father of italian horror movies mario baba yeah he kind of dips his toe into the pool of Giallo and begins to make the very first Giallo film. Now, at, the, at that time, a lot of these, even like Fulci, who we just talked about being a horror director, 
they they were doing like genre pictures, right? They were doing comedies or dramas. Yeah, Phil, so was Bava like that too? Was Bava, Bava doing? Did, I feel like Bava. I think he did maybe some of the sword and sandals, like gladiator type movies. But uh, he became pretty well known for horror pretty soon, and yeah. he is really like, if you trace it back, I mean, there obviously could have been horror yeah, type course. films before. Uh, but he's the one who really starts yeah. that they they can take the template of a giallo kind of a movie and, and put the, it onto his. And what's considered the very first giallo movie is a film called The Girl That Knew Too Much. Yeah. And it's also called like Evil Eye, I think is an alternate title. Um, we hope the, everybody's taking notes out because this is going to be a fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cast. We're gonna, it's you a know? lot of history. Yeah. A lot of, and then there's going to be a lot of film school theory going a on. A lot of stuff as, here. As it's a very serious, it's, it's the bike of the, it's the back of the bike episode yeah, of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> of the Saturday Night <laughs> Movie. Yeah, the bike a shop. Very episode. special episode of Saturday Night Movie. So everybody who's, who is sitting on beanbags, we don't want anybody to make any noise, just open your, uh, you know, your Slimer Kool Aid, uh, you know, things now. Open everything up now. And, all right, here we go. So the, uh, Mario Bava creates a, uh, does a movie called Girl Knows Too Much. Uh, girl knew too much, and and obviously a little bit of a nod to Hitchcock. Yeah. Well, a lot of these I think turn out to be kind of um, like so, pseudo love letters to Hitchcock. A lot of these elements of these giallos, yeah. in my opinion. And for the listeners who are that are out there that are big fans of or, or listeners and and read the blogs and stuff for the F this movie site, John Saxon's been coming up a lot over there. Yeah. And. Uh, Saxon dips his toe into one of these movies. He's in. He's in the girl that knows too, the girl that knew too much, or AKA the evil eye. He's in that young yeah. strapping. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's uh, pre uh, Enter the Dragon. John. Oh Saxon. yeah, it's mid sixties. I mean, he was in. I mean, we can't get into the John yeah, yeah, Saxon yeah, yeah. thing. But he was he, a key, he was a character actor in the fifties, yeah. like Eastwood and like Burt he, Reynolds. He'd one been of those around guys. for a long time. He was he was all part of the studio system. And then in the in the sixties, I think. Kind of starting with Eastwood, you know, everybody ran over. Eastwood yeah. did the spaghetti western, and then all the it was the big thing for American actors to go over on the cheap, go to Spain or overseas, make a shitload of money by doing these genre pictures and coming back, be it westerns or like these horrors. So it was quite popular. The interesting thing for me about uh, the girl that knew too much, the Baba movie, the Baba movie is it's considered the first Jalo movie. Um, by most people, I mean, I can't do a blanket statement. It is the first. Cause, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but, but most people consider that the first. What's interesting about it is that because it's being, it's playing off of a style of book, it's very meta in a way. Like, it's playing off all these conventions that are popular because of the book, but not in cinema. So it's it's almost as if like in 1974, Scream came out. And Scream's playing off all these established conventions. Yeah. But they haven't really been established in cinema yet. So it's like... If Scream were to come out at that time. <laughs> yeah, it would have been like, wait, what? Um, so... I, it confuses that, audiences? or I don't know if it did because maybe the books were popular enough but because she's a big reader of them, of like yeah. Agatha Christie, the main character. And so she's like... So it's, maybe people it's go very, into the... It's very meta, and it's kind of fascinating to think that it's the first one, yeah. but it's also like the scream of the genre yeah, maybe it's, <laughs> at the it, same time. Since that genre of reading, you know, reading in general was so popular at the time, people could identify a lot yeah. with it and see that. And then there's also another, um, to get too far in the weeds, that weird Italian movement, I guess, or should we wait till later about, you know, this the experience of seeing a giallo film in the cinema well, i don't even know if we need to get too you know, much into that i mean but i but think it's fascinating for just to, to 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 i guess we we can 
touch on that in a little while. Um, and then going forward, the first one attributed to having like the black gloved killer is Blood and Black Lace, also by Bava. So Bava is kind of establishing this uh, subgenre of thriller for Italy. And then like 69 comes around and this young guy who was a writer, a uh, critic, you know, wrote for newspapers and magazines, film critic, wrote some couple of Westerns, spaghetti Westerns, uh, helped establish like the outline, uh, I believe with the Michelangelo Antonioni for Once Upon the West, Once Upon a Time in the West, the Leone movie. Yeah. He, he decides to... This is Dario Argento. Step into yeah. his into the director's chair and Dario Argento he directs the bro, the bird with crystal plumage. Yeah, uh, Dario, uh, he kind of grew up in the film business. His dad was a producer, uh, Salvatore. Yeah, producer and screenwriter. And so he gets the chance to make his first movie. So he he decides that he's going to step in and he's going to do the bird with crystal plumage. Uh, what's interesting about Argento is that he becomes the guy that revives this genre, this subgenre. Yeah, he's a weird guy, and it's it's interesting that he goes in there, tips his toes. He be, he's a critic, then segues into screenwriting, and then he's able to get that success because, uh, arguably, that's could be even more than. Uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, that Once Upon a Time yeah. in the West is like the penultimate yeah. uh, spaghetti western that kind of closes out that genre respectfully. You know, there's, of course, other things that fall over in the 70s, but that kind of is really good at establishing himself. And I think people even say, is a speculation that that whole opening scene might be out of his head? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, where the Woody Strode and uh, Jack Elam and the third guy are waiting for the Charlie Bronson um, harmonica man to come and that whole suspense. And that's very much, you look at the suspense in that scene during the credits. I mean, that's very, yeah. you know, like it's almost like a little uh, movie of a preview of what's to come. So with him now coming in and with, with Burr with the Crystal Plumage. Is, <clears throat> which is like loosely based on some book. I I d didn't research uh, that. We can only do so much, you know. I was I was concentrating on the on the movie that we're doing tonight. But yeah. uh, so by the time he does that movie, the Giallo thing is kind of becoming has become kind of a little of a thing, and then it's starting to fizzle out a little bit. He comes out with, Bert, with Crystal Plumage. He's hailed. He's hailed with as the Italian Hitchcock. Yeah, like right off the bat, and that movie is a huge success for him. Yeah, his first movie. He fucking hits it out of the park, and it's like a it's like a whodunit thriller that's has um, for the time big gore factor. So it's like it borders. Yeah, I mean, he ends up progressively did, getting did, in. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Deep Red ends up taking the kind of that kind of stuff to the next level. It's a but horror, but this is kind of like him it's just, very visceral. I mean, we'll talk about that. Uh, it's, it is a lot of Hitchcock, Hitchcocky with the with the you know we love. The idea that Hitchcock liked, um, we love his movies of it, like the Cary Grant or the Jimmy Stewart, where you're the, or yeah. even the, what's his face, um, Henry Fonda, where you're the man who's accused of something, you don't know what you've done, and yeah. then you're running, and then you have to f figure it out yourself. You well, know? yeah, it becomes a little bit of a, I think it's a, a little bit of a trope for Giallo or Gialli in general, but uh, it's something that Argento definitely latches onto. The idea of the, uh, Reluctant hero. Yeah. And also what's a big thing in Jolly and Argento is like the stranger in a strange land. Yeah. He's an, it's an American in Rome in uh, Bird with Crystal Plumage. We move forward to uh, Deep Red. It's an English 
jazz piano player who spent some time in America, but now he's in Italy. Yeah. So it's like someone who they're not from there, and they witness a murder, and then they become the like the because of the amateur detective. Yeah, because because the the local law enforcement can't get any forward, which is a very uh, you know in a lot of ways it's also a very film noir thing. Yeah, it's, I'm going to say it's also, it's very older. It's almost like, I mean, you know, Scooby-Doo's doing it at the time, you know, that self-detective. But even goes back to like Agatha Christie where you have the yeah. young, like a Ms. Marple or somebody or a Harky Perot, even though he's a detective, but <clears throat> well, like taking the, upon themselves to figure yeah, it well, out. Yeah, well, like if you look at the, uh, like the film noir movies, like none of them were ever like police detectives, rarely. It was always yeah. like an insurance detective yeah, or, a private or eye, maybe yeah. a private detective yeah. was hired or to do something. even some dude who like was you know his, the femme fatale was his lover and then he's trying to search out the truth you know yeah so this this is what he's kind of playing on and the success of bird with crystal plumage spawns like a ton of imitators yeah and they all have you know uh, black belly of the tarantula uh, the woman in a lizard skin which is fulci um don't torture a duckling they all have like animals in the title yeah. it's trying to get that italian thing of like almost like the Bachbuster, yeah which is like kind of become pseudo popular here with yeah. like asylum pictures or what they used to do on sci-fi channel this idea of like Hey, that's what you know. That was huge. Let's just cookie cutter it out and keep developing them. Yeah. Um, even Argento ends up doing it, and he his least favorite movie is Cat and Nine Tales, which is his second movie because he feels like it was producers kind of pushed him to do that. Which is 1971 now, as we start going. Which forward. I actually, it's one of my, it's actually might be my favorite of that trilogy of yeah. his quote unquote animal trilogy, which the third movie is Four Flies on Gray Velvet. Those three movies, Bird with Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tales, and Four Flies and Grey Velvet, have become affectionately referred to by fans as his animal trilogy. And him too. And, and, and they're I, all scored by Neil Morricone. And I think they're, uh, they're a must for cinema fans. I mean, even for horror fans. You and I saw them first together, and for years, I, they were like indistinguishable to me because we watched yeah. them back to well, back. Well, Four Flies, for the longest time, was very difficult to find. Yeah. Because it was, they made a company to, like his dad had put together a company to release it and then the company went bankrupt and there was like all kinds of legalities. It has popped up on DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't we know. We found it in that really hard to find in that best video. Remember? We were like, oh, and we watched it. Yeah, I think that we... was like a bootleg though. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like a, from some work print or laser disc of some sort. Yeah, but we were able to see it. And, 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 and it's... And then I, got, of... I got to see it as part of a, an Anir Morricone retrospective. I think at Film Forum a few years ago. Um, they played it. Wow. And I went to see it. I wonder if that was his connection because Morricone had done the score for Once Upon a Time in the West, so he probably was like, "Hey, I'm he doing probably, a." You know, he Morricone probably worked. I mean, not probably. He worked so much yeah. and and put out so much. I mean, we know the big ones. We know, you know, the Leone scores. And if you're a horror fan, you might know the Argento scores. But he was churning them out, and oh, so yeah. it's probably very likely that he had scored some of Argento's father's movies uh, before this. And that was the acquaintance. I would imagine so. I mean, really, it's, there's a lot of nepotism going on. Yeah. And luckily, Argento is enough of a visionary and talented enough to kind of push past it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, it was... He it. got opportunities, but he became likely... Yeah. 
one of the most distinct like auteurs of horror cinema. Yeah, and his father Claudio didn't he, he That's his brother. Oh, okay. Then they they helped they started producing stuff with him too. Well, that's when I think I think Salvatore produced like the first three movies. Yeah. And then Deep Red comes around uh and it's produced by both his brother Claudio and his father Salvatore. Now, these plots that you have here like we said are these like who done it's where there's a murder and there's a maybe a man in a foreign land and then they become very convoluted in a sense where there's a lot going on, but then there's not a lot going on. You kind of got to pay attention. If you're casually watching, you could get lost. And I guess this would be a point where I was saying before is interesting that that you, you hipped me in our last podcast we did a couple years ago on this giallo phenomenon about uh, in post-World War II in Italy that like, uh, you know, how cinema was making uh, a comeback and everybody in the 50s in America, TV was number one and probably all over the world, yeah. except Italy, maybe because it was too expensive. They get people were still going to the cinema. And then you also were saying that it was different over there as Italians are Italians, that cinema wasn't just going about to watch a movie. It was about the event, the social aspect of it, yeah. which I find is freaking hilarious. That This is like, you know, you and I like to go to a movie. Everyone shut the hell up. We want to watch the movie. We're in Italy at this time. People, you know, it was such so known that people are going to chat, walk around, talk to people, casually watch that. This is how the formula in the format of the movies that were being presented were kind of mapped out. Yeah, yeah. You know, basically, it's like you had like the big cities, which would get like the big movies. Yeah, then they would maybe get the Hollywood movies or the big budget Italian movies would play in these cinemas. But then, as you kind of got away from Rome. Or uh, Naples, or yeah, Florence. like the bigger cities. As you started to like a like a web, yeah, you go out <laughs> regionally to like the smaller towns. They would like all these theaters would have a uh, have theaters. I mean, all these towns would have these theaters. So Italy started to produce less expensive films, yeah. the B pictures for you know all intents and, and purposes. And that movie Cinema Paradiso is a great example of this, where you know the, growing up in that time in those small cinema in a small town. And so they would produce these pictures to play in these other theaters. And then it was like, well, since we're producing them anyway, we'll do them in a whole bunch of different languages and we'll make our money back overseas by dishing them out to like, you know, Times Square, yeah. Grindhouse Theaters, you know, uh, drive-ins, blah, so blah, blah. It's so interesting that there's such a demand that they're just, you know, they're just throwing money at it because they know that these movies will get seen and they can't, not all the first run movies can make these little, yeah. like uh, second run theaters. So they're yeah. like, so we're going to just supply and demand. Just, you know, they're doing like... Churn it out. It's like, I don't know, like cable television or something you know you got like the now it's like it's become something completely different but when cable television came out you had the networks yeah and then you'd have all these other yeah. new cable networks and That's you know they would get reruns of uh, <laughs> things from the, the networks but then they started to produce their own stuff and it wasn't as popular and that's kind of what's going on here in italy at this time reportedly I mean, it's, it's very much like i guess you look at the 70s here with us we did you know the tv movie or the movie of the week where you'd have a big movie that's in the in the in the movies the cinema yeah. but then you'd have something very similar be done made uh, for a TV movie, you yeah, know, so yeah. they're trying to supply that demand of like it's not quite called, uh, <laughs> you know, a Hitchcock yeah, in a way psycho, it is like a but mockbuster it's yeah, a you know, and that's like you said, very much as Silent Pictures would do with Sci-Fi Channel. If you had Transformers, they would come out something we call Transmorphers. Yeah, you know, yeah. the you know, day the Earth stood still be the day the Earth stopped, and which are real movies. So, so the so. Italian, the Italian film industry is is kind of really what's keeping the lights on is dishing out these lower budget. 
exploitation movies to these smaller theaters. Now, the social aspect of it that you're... <laughs> it's amazing. The social aspect of it that you brought up is like you said, for some reason, TV is huge all over the world, but not Italy. Yeah. Um, hey, maybe it was too much for they hadn't developed. Maybe they hadn't developed their own... Yeah, band system of like yeah. broadcasting. And so they weren't churning out a lot of programming in Italian, whatever whatever yeah. the reason, movies are still the big thing. So, like, you know, it would be like you would go to the movies, like, almost every night. Yeah. You would go down, you'd walk down or drive over to the local theater, and since everybody was there, it was like getting together with everybody in your neighborhood to watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a block party in the cinema. <laughs> you know, drinking they, vino. and They'd all just... show up. I'd see Dion sitting over there, and I'd go sit with him for hey, a while. Almost died. You know, we, we would shoot the <laughs> yeah. shit. We'd watch some of the movie. We would talk. <laughs> we'd, we'd catch up, and then I'd see somebody else. <laughs> hey, and then, and then, and then, and so what happens is you get these. The filmmakers and the and the time film industry realize that this is the way people, people are aren't watching, watching the movie. From they're talking. <laughs> the movie's background, so story becomes less important. Mm-hmm. Um. And this is critical, I think, for people to appreciate this genre. Yeah. That this is why, these, you know, some people, all these movies suck. It's like, no, there's a reason because of this. It's like they're not, viewers are not really paying attention anyway. So the story is either really kind of simple or doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And so what happens is you start to get these set pieces, uh, like very graphic or violent uh, death scenes or boobs or yeah. very sexual and those things, and, and, it's and like, the elongated death scenes, where like a death scene could take like say thirty seconds to a minute, with like some crazy jazz yeah. fusion score, like dun 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 dun. You know, it's like and it's like ah, you know, it's all, and it become you know, in a lot of ways, and it's, it's very pacing. It's in a lot of ways, minutes. in a lot of ways, it's very much of like the YouTube video culture of like just like not really paying attention to things and like you're or like you're you're watching a TV show and you're texting your friend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like even like porn nowadays. In the old days porn used to have stories wrapped around sex scenes. Yeah. Nowadays people are like we don't need the story. So now yeah. you just get like scenes. Oh, you know, da 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 da. So it's like, you know, we just need it and let's go. So but the the, the so they would plot out like every 15 20 minutes or so you'd have one of these big uh scenes throughout these movies whether it be a western uh Sword and Sandal movie, a sex comedy, which was also very big in the 60s in Italy. In England, too, sex comedies were um, huge. And those things were specifically designed to grab the viewer's attention again. So yeah. Deanna and I would be shooting the shit. They'd be like, hey, And then all of a sudden, hey, like, quick, chat. <laughs> <laughs> the hatchet comes down, uh, some crazy jazz. And then we would all, it would bring our attention back to the movie. Yeah. And then it would be what we would watch those scenes, and then, <laughs> and then you'd hear like you'd see the cigarette burn. You're like, <laughs> and then like the, the you know the real change, and then it would go to something else, and people were like, ah, oh, Lord. Oh, so yeah. it was a very, uh, it was a, it's kind, of, it is kind of a fascinating like social aspect or you know sociological. And I, like I said, I think you see that in that great movie, that Cinema Paradiso movie, yeah. where they, you see that you know that people go in there and all that kind of stuff, and yeah. it, you know it's very that's it, it capsulizes that whole. So it's time a, in a lot of ways, it's like the way people watch movies are determining the way movies are made, which They're, is which is fascinating to think that like the 
tours back then were it's not saying like I don't care. I'm going to stick with my. You know, people are like no, you have to. Yeah, you have to it's adapt to survive is. because people aren't going to go see your movie if it's all like a talkie. You know, I mean, they will see. That's the distinction I think. If they're going to see a first run like uh, Hollywood Golden Age Humphrey Bogart or yeah. whatever, they'll see it because it's you know Jimmy Jimmy Cagney Humphrey Bogart. You know, Edward G. Robinson. But for their own B Grindhouse movies, yeah. for them to if there's if Joe, nobody's in it that they recognize except for some you know big chested woman who's running around. Yeah. They're going to need to have these set pieces for them to, to to distract them to look back on the screen, you know. And that kind of that's weird how that dictates then the 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 plotting or the yeah. I mean, you know, it really is kind of fascinating, and we could do easily an entire podcast yeah. just talking about which we that. did. We did a sidecast <laughs> some years ago on the Giallo. So this is that's what basically that's what Giallo is in a nutshell. Yeah. And then then we have guys who are doing thrillers that that are. You can debate if they're horrors purely, but they're more thriller with horrific elements, like yeah. the death scenes and stuff. But then, like in a lot, I think I think in Italy, like these movies, even the majority, they're just gory. They're very gory Hitchcock. Even, movies. even the majority of Argento's movies are probably not considered horror movies. Yeah. I don't think he gets. I don't think he doesn't get labeled as a horror director in Italy until Suspiria. Inferno phenomena, where you get the asp this aspect of the supernatural, the paranormal. Yeah. I think to it, late 70s. in Italy, I think that's more yeah. what they think of as horror. These other things are strictly giallo, which are murder mystery thrillers, basically. And then for people who are American fans, uh, what's interesting in the late seventies and the eighties, you have big uh, directors here like Brian De Palma. Yeah. Doing the, basically, he's doing giallos. His first four movies are like love yeah. letters to either Hitchcock or to these gi well, giallo subculture. It's it's what that it is fascinating After because you look carry. at undoubtedly some of these movies, aspects of these movies, maybe the entire movies. They are kind of birthed from Hitchcock, basically. So Hitchcock kind of influences this. Uh, genre. I mean, I, one could certainly argue, you know, like you said, Argento is considered the Hitch, the Italian Hitchcock. You could really sit down. There's a lot of arguments to be made that like they're actually working on to two totally different planes of things they're interested in, dramatically or thematically, blah blah blah. But this is the moniker he gets. Uh, so certainly these movies are being influenced by Hitchcock. And then what's interesting is these movies influence Hitchcock. Frenzy is a giallo. Wow, it's a it's a like a you know trench coated dark what's, black trench. In, in what uh, Frenzy is like mid seventies, right? It's it, it might is it his last movie? No, um, uh, Family Plot with Bruce Dern's his last movie. And that's like seventy nine, and he dies around that. And time. I did an interview with uh, Alan Jones on the Podwits, where he he basically wrote the book on Argento. He wrote a book called He's a, that that gentleman who we could put a link into this cast about it. Um, he is a uh, British. Um, what is he like? A critic? He's a yeah. He's but he's an aficionado. He was very much part of the uh, the British division of the magazine Cinema Fantastique. Yeah, which we talked about uh, somewhat recently. A couple on a casts cast. ago. Um, and so he would go on set, and so he was on like every Argento set. I think starting with Tenebre in the in the early eighties, and he would really go on there and talk to people and report from that. But uh, so he. He has become very close to Argento over the years, wrote a book called Profundo Argento, and it has been re-released with a different title and, and some updated chapters. But um, talking to him, I said, you know, do you think that Frenzy is influenced by Argento? And he was like, totally. He's yeah. like, think about it. A guy that loves movies, meaning Hitchcock, 
you know, he he's not just a filmmaker. Well, we, he's, he's a guy that genuinely loves cinema. We we talked about in our in our uh, Smoking the Bandit cast that his daughters admitted that his that like a, a, a what do you call that a secret love or whatever is he loves Smoking yeah. the Bandit. So you're right, he's sitting down. You know, it and wasn't watching like, these movies. It wasn't like Bird with Coastal Plumage was big just in Italy. I mean, it was big all throughout Europe. It played in America. I mean, so being Hitchcock, a guy who eats, you know, shits, breathes <laughs> fucking cinema. Um, if, you know, imagine if it was you, you know, if it was like, if I was like, Dion, you know, there's this guy that's called the Italian Dion, yeah. the Italian Dion Baia. <laughs> and, he, you know, like, would you not be curious? Yeah, of course. Like, of you're course. going to seek out, and especially if it's in your wheelhouse. If he's making romantic comedies, eh, I'll get yeah. around to it. But if this he's guy making, making thrillers, you know, they're calling him the Italian Hitchcock. Of course Hitchcock went yeah. and saw fucking his movies. Yeah. And, and, then, just going, mm. <laughs> and then Frenzy comes out. Yeah. And it is like by the book Italian giallo yeah. but made in England. Yeah. Now, I have a little I take umbrage with Brian De Palma cuz Brian De Palma and Frenzy's the one with the there's that huge scene uh where they're trying to kill, a, they're killed. Remember there's the scene in the in the in the uh in the apartment where they're killing the guy and he won't die and they're using like the oven, isn't that isn't that Frenzy? I feel like it's it is. It's been so long. I mean, I know the killer strangles people. Yeah. Um, but you, but you have it's you, very provocative for Hitchcock. For Hitchcock. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's like it's you see how things have become more lenient towards things like violence, and and had Hitchcock been able to show more in his earlier movies, how much more provocative his movies would have been. Yeah. And it's so my point of bringing that up. You're right. That frenzy because I do remember there's scenes and. Frenzy where it's like it takes a while for someone to die. It's like a lot of that stuff's drawn out like you see in these movies. It's so, textbook yeah. giallo. So um, De Palma. And so De Palma, Umbridge. he, you know, uh, and I've come to really like some of De Palma's films a lot. I, you know, there was a, there was a long time where I just didn't, I, he wasn't, I just didn't connect with him as a viewer. Like his stuff just didn't speak to me, but I kind of, I don't know if it was a maturity or. Except for Carlito's way. We, we I mean, all... yeah, I loved Carlito's way, but I was never like as big a fan of the untouchables as you were. Yeah. Um, I never was really wise guys that much in the Scarface. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Scarface, I've come around to because I've said in another podcast, which I won't get into, but I just I didn't like it because, of, like, I felt like the rap culture appropriated it and then they were glorifying it for the wrong reasons yeah. and then they weren't doing any homework and realizing it was a remake at the very least. So. And at the time, I don't know why I was if it was just a tainted immaturity or whatever. Uh, well, you stu- stayed away stubborn, from all. stubbornness. I didn't like Carrie. But I've come to really like Carrie now, and I think yeah. Sisters is really interesting. But in the recent years, as I come around to these movies, I you know I check out Blowout, yeah, and Dress to Kill, Dress to Kill, Body Double, and uh, I feel there's a, is there another session, one? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And so, but like, because Dress to Kill, I see Dress to Kill, and I was like, this has got yeah. Argento written all over. Yeah, you know, his semen's all over. I, it. I think everybody thinks of uh, him as like. Who's Continua, him, uh, uh, De, De Palma continually pay, paying homage to Hitchcock, but it just it reeks of Italian. Yeah, I mean, cinema. we don't want to give and, it away, but just how. And my umbrage with him is that he really it. downplays it. Says, "Oh, I never, you know, I, I think I saw, you know, I think I saw one Argento movie. Like, you know, Argento's not. Oh, he's full of shit. You then, know, I like say. he just like really kind of downplays. It. And maybe, and to be honest, it." There is a chance, you know, to to give him, you know, maybe a little bit of benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's he's taking it from frenzy, you know. Or yeah, he's, which, well, which, there's definitely heavily like there's a lot of those movies in the early '80s until maybe you get to like 
uh, post Scarface and post um, Wise Guys before he does Untouchables, where it's very much like he's fascinated with Hitchcock and he's fascinated yeah. with this. But then even Blowout is is there's you can't deny that it's 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 it has to be influenced by uh, Antonioni's Blow uh, Blow Up. Yeah. Uh, the Palmas blow out. I mean, with John Travolta, which is in essence a you know a giallo. It's a little bit more abstract, maybe a little more experimental, um, but it's in July the Fourth movie as well. <laughs> it's also July the Fourth movie. Yeah. Uh, we said but anyway, so Philly, right? Rocky Philly. Yeah, yeah. So alternate universes they're playing on the same time. <laughs> we brought that up in the Rocky cast. <laughs> That's true. That at the like, end of the Rocky there's cast, this there's this serial killer running around at the Philadelphia uh, while everybody's getting ready for the big fight for the big Rocky fight. <laughs> you know, go Rocky. And he's he's it's very maniac. Like Joe Spinell's down there too. <sighs> the uh, so I'm just saying. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, uh, we get back to the, we took a left turn, but we're getting so, back to the Italians. So just the influence of it has is permeating cinema, especially in the seventies. Yeah. Now what's interesting about Argento, as now we're going to kind of leap into the movie itself, Profondo Rosso, Profondo Rosso, um, is Bava cr- kind of creates this genre as a as a you know in cinema by sixty nine seventy, it's kind of had its run. Argento comes with it. Hits it with hits it out of the park with Bird with Crystal Plumage becomes fucking huge. Yeah. Like we said, now all these imitators and some of them are very good, some of them are not so good. Um, but all these Giallo movies start getting made. M- much of them have the uh, an animal in the title based on you know this template that Argento had kind of set up. And then by uh, 74, 73, 74, they're starting to die down again. Of course. They've kind of had the run. Yeah. 72, 73. When you like, saturate the market. People are like, eh, I don't want to drink my wine and watch the animals get killed. <laughs> and then 75. Oh, there's no animals getting killed. 75, Deep Red comes out. And everybody's like, holy fuck. And you can go again. <laughs> and, and so, like, spikes back he up. is the savior of the Giallo film. Yeah. He's the one that keeps it going. Every time it's down and out, Argento comes back in, knocks one out of the park, and all of a sudden, it's a big thing again. Yeah. Now, for Argento himself, he had those three hits with the with the animal trilogy. He decides, I don't want to get typecast as a pigeonholed as a thriller director. Yeah. So he comes out with like a you know oh, a couple TV. Like, well, one he comes out with a film called uh, Five Days in Milan, which is like a period uh, drama movie or something, or like a comedy. I I uh, you know full disclosure, I've actually never seen it. It's hard to get a good copy of it. Um, and it, and, it, and it doesn't do well. Yeah. kind of bombs. And he does another movie around that time, too, um, A Man Called Amen, which is from 70. Both Those both are 73. So it's like he's doing uh, these, you know. Not as a feature movie, anyway. You know, it, may, it might have been a TV he movie does, he, he Well, anyway, so he does Five Days in Milan. It doesn't do very well. Yeah, he does two Italian dramas. Produced, Five Days in Milan and then the other one. Um, and then, but on TV, he does a TV show he, where he's like the Hitchcock. He hosts this TV show which is like a very giallo thriller-based TV show called um, Door into Darkness, which is available on DVD. You can actually find it. And I think he directed one or two episodes, but other great Italian thriller horror directors that are notable have also also did uh, episodes of it. And he hosts, he presents it. He becomes a personality. How long does it run for? I think it's only like four or five episodes. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, 
I don't know what the and cycle, that's in seventy around this time seventy three seventy four yeah it's between it's just before Four Flies and Great Velvet yeah yeah and Profundo Russell when he does these two TV movies so and, he kind of bombs at the box office he's kind of down on that in the in the theater but on television he's doing he stuff. produces. Uh, and maybe it's like England where they do like a series is like six episodes or whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't know what the cycle is in Italy in terms of a, you know, how long a series runs. But he, he does it and he, and he introduces all that. So he comes, he's in people's uh, houses. He becomes famous as a director. He, yeah. he, he, a personality. He, which is another aspect of like taking that from Hitch, you know, from Hitchcock. Hitchcock presents. It becomes like he's the face of his yeah, movies. Yeah, like Orson Welles would do or like a, uh, Howard Hughes. Or... And the TV show does, for, does, does pretty well for television. Like we established like t- TV, you know, maybe by the 70s TV starts to pick up a little bit more. But, you know, we were talking more like 50s, 60s, the way people watched movies in the theater and not watch television. By the 70s, TV's probably, you know... Yeah, they're probably getting... You know, huge pop. You know, it's now been 20 years or whatever. So it starts to pick up. He becomes... The TV show does very well, so he says, maybe I need to return to the thriller. To the cinema. To the jalo, you know. So he decides that he's going to... That would have been great if you you were able to say that in Italian. (laughs) I need to return to the giallo. So he he decides that he's going to make another giallo film. Like we said, Giallo's kind of down and out. He says, screw it, I'm going to do another one. And that's when he does Deep Red. Yeah. So now we're, this is probably 74, he's making it. It comes out in 75. He takes an idea. The whole thing uh, comes from this idea, and it's a very important aspect for Argento because up until his movies, the four, uh, the, his, the Animal Trilogy, the Animal Trilogy, Another aspect of Argento that's that's like a recurring thing for him is science, yeah. and it's like a pseudoscience, like a fictional science. I mean, in uh, maybe not so much in *Bird with Crystal Plumage*. I mean, there's a lot of like they hear something on the back of a tape. You know, there's like a you know replaying things. So there's like a forensic almost type science. Um, but with uh, Cat and Nine Tales, it's about like DNA strands, and if you have a certain, you know, geo or something like yeah. that, you become more aggressive. And he's so he's playing with this idea of like fictional science. And then uh, Four Flies on Gray Velvet is like th- the last image you see before you die is imprinted on like the back of your cornea or whatever. Yeah. And if you can extract that, you can see who the killer was. Yeah, <laughs> like it's another idea that the Hammer does is a great movie. To, uh, Terror Train, where they no, is it Terror Train with with uh, yeah, with that, that, that's the point with um, Peter Cushing, Kelly Savalas of all people, and uh, Christopher Lee were the you know yeah that's the idea on the on the image of the retina. So, Look, so, it's a pterodactyl. So Argento has this thing with science. Now Deep Red comes around, and this is very important because it's what eventually will lead to Suspiria and him becoming a hard director. As he introduces the idea of the paranormal. Yeah. And this is him segueing off of from the whodunits, yeah. the giallos. He comes off. He comes with it's. It comes from a true story. He knows this medium, like a psychic medium, who tells him a story that they were doing a seance somewhere, and they got this vibe that somebody inside the room with them was evil. Wow, how fucking and so freaky he, is and that? And so he takes this idea, and he's been chewing on it for a while because yeah. even when they were doing Four Flies on Gray Velvet, who. Uh, Louis Giacosi, who is a, who had became a become a director, he worked on Four Flies and Great Velvet. Um, he tells Louis Giacosi about this idea. He's like, I got this idea, you know, 
this this idea, <laughs> this idea of that there's this medium and there's someone that's evil inside the room. And then that's kind of like the springboard. So he's chewing on this idea for a couple of years. Yeah. And so finally, for the idea to come to Profondorosa comes around. And so there's this aspect where we, for all intents and purposes, really the first scene, even though there's a little bit of jam session going on, yeah. jazz jam session. Uh, the first scene is we're in like this psychology like, seminar. Yeah. And they're talking to like, and it's the seminar on parapsychology. And there's a medium who in is, front of this whole audience up on stage. Yeah, you know, the proscenium of the, the theater is a very big thing in Argento's movies. Um, opera comes, you know, in the 80s. Theater is, is something that he, you know, I think there's there's parts, you know, things take place in the theater a lot in his movies. Because yeah. I think he grew up with the theater and, and whatnot. So they're doing this, uh, I guess, demonstrating these like psychic powers that she has. Because yeah, some people are like disbelievers, of course. When yeah, she yeah. starts saying like, there's a gentleman in the third row. He's, yeah. he's holding his keys. He's four keys. The One key is the longest. He's like, it is me. I do. <laughs> I have these. Yeah, yeah. So it's like those crazy, crazy. demonstrations. And yeah. then all of a sudden she's hit with like this wave of like evil. Yeah. Kind of. And then it's very, uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's engaging. I was trying to think of a, there was a, trying to think of a movie that there's a scene like it. But, um, and that's kind of the spring. Well, it's almost like later on, it's like um, Stephen King's um, Christopher Walken movie, Dead Zone, where he touches oh, yeah, yeah. people. That kind yeah. of the words. The ice. Yeah. It's, it's going to break. You're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> you're going to die. You got to get out of here now. Today. Tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe. You ever see the Santa Life skit that the grass yeah, where he's touching yeah. people? Wow. You're going to track mud all over the house. <laughs> but, um, and then it's oh, to a certain extent, too, again, Stephen King in The Shining, this Catman Crothers yeah. psychic. It's true, true. You know what I mean? Like with the kid, they're getting that power. So the idea is that, like, by psychic link, the this medium becomes the witness, kind of of a crime. Like that's like so now, you know, the the killer is in the audience for some reason. You know, uh, we'll talk about. <laughs> oh yeah, so randomly seeing the seminar, then the killer gets up and leaves. Yeah, but she kind of says what she's seeing. And then kind of collapses with the two people like, oh my god, she needs help next to her, like her two assistants. So in a way, it's like now the killer, you know, it's very first person too. Yeah, you know, now the killer kind of feels obligated that now has to kill this person. Like yeah. in a way, like I said, it's almost like they're the witness to a crime. Yeah. Um, and so you have to you have to you know tie up all you have to cut all the loose ends. And we also I mean? have a um, this the, I think the movie actually opens when you fade up on. La, la. It's like a Christmas oh, morning. It's, we didn't know this is a Christmas movie. Yeah, I, you, you know, know I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna text you. You know, this is a Christmas movie. Before we ended up watching it, I was thinking like maybe we should wait for this for Christmas <laughs> because it has a Christmas tree in it. So it opens up. I, I, it must be Christmas time or whatever like that. And then you see uh, against the wall silhouette of, of a murder, uh, of basically. a murder, someone getting stabbed to death. And then you see it, and you see can see the floor for, in the shot. And then all of a sudden, this big bloody butcher knife drops to the floor, and then walks in. Uh, looks like a child's feet with like you know the long stockings. And then that's the movie. Then it kind of fades to your jam session. Yeah, <laughs> which is like you know, music is huge it, in these movies. Yeah, and for people that are gonna try to you know haven't seen it, want to see it. 
we're talking about the Italian cut of the movie, yeah, which is uh, what, 126 minutes. Yeah, it's a two hours and six minutes. They they for some reason when they went to the American version, which they, I don't know if it was Bill the Hatchet Murders. He uh, for years they didn't they didn't know, if, but it was confirmed that it was Argento who supervised. He took out 26 minutes. Yeah, he took out some some of the gore and a lot of like the comedy. Yeah, and then there's two scenes of kind of animal violence. One of which is debatable. One scene that is pretty horrific on an animal. They took all that out, and that didn't get restored to like. 2008 or not yeah you know so we if you want to go watch this now if you get this off of netflix if you don't get if you get the hatchet murders you're going to get the american cut which is just over you know what is it like an hour uh, uh, an like hour 40 minutes or something yeah but if you get if you go buy this dvd or you go rent it on netflix you're going to get the two hours or at least the option yeah to watch, watch it with the you know version. with you and then this is another thing too with these original um uh scenes that are put back in much like they do this with, if people know, the extended, extended cut of uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. They never translated it in English. Yeah. So a lot there of these... There was no need to spend the time and yeah, the money to, to, to dub lines in English that were never going to be seen in English. Yeah, so a lot of these movies, uh, when they have these scenes put back in, you know, all of a sudden there's Italian subtitles. Even if, if you're watching it with, with, with dubbed in English, you yeah. know. If you're watching the original English, uh, Italian, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. You know, so that's where you see this happen. So we're, we're working off, we watched the Italian cut And in the Italian time. version, we kind of open on this little, like, jazz jam session happening. Yeah. And that's where we're introduced to our main character, Marcus, uh, played by David Hemmings. Yeah. Who we brought up, blow up the, the Antonioni movie uh, just recently. Um, in relation to Blowout, and we brought up Antonioni in relation to uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. He did a movie that's, like I said, kind of a giallo, but that stars David Hemmings. Yeah, Hemmings looking very much like a young David Spader in this movie. <laughs> you know, rocking the mullet. Yeah, I mean, not mullet, but the hair on top of the hair in the back. James Spader? Uh, David Spader. No, David, David Spader. <laughs> James Spader. James Spader. He looks a lot like David Spader. <laughs> yeah, David Spader. <laughs> he looks like a Joe Dirt a lot. No, I'm kidding. I always get the spades mixed up. James Spader. Um, and he is a, a British uh, jazz piano player. piano player, but he's teaching at like the conservatory. The Rome, Rome yeah, conservatory. it takes place in Rome, but they filmed it in Turin, and he filmed it in Turin because uh, he said for a weird reason that he said it, uh, it's it's he says it's it's very magical and haunting as well as at the time in all of Europe it had the most concentration of Satanists practicing Satanists yeah. in, in Turin, so they filmed it in Turin. Yeah, the majority like. The vast majority of it is filmed in Turin, but yeah. there are set in there, Rome. there are others. You know, there are some. A little bit of it is, is yeah. shot in Rome, but it's for the most part set in Rome. Um, and so it's him jamming, and he, uh, you know, he stops the session. He gives some notes or whatever. So that's really how the movie starts. So we're introduced to the character right away. Then we go to the uh, the convention. The, the yeah, the exposition with the with the, with the, with the, with the psychiatrist. Oh, I'm sorry. With with the with the psychic, and she has her little thing, and then she kind of passes out, and then it's like he's. Then it cuts back to him leaving and going out for the night, and then it's interesting that the the Edward Hopper aspect. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I mean, I'm a huge Hopper fan, and I think uh, this Edward Hopper, the painter, and a lot of people. Might know Edward Hopper because of the iconic diner. It's called uh, Nighthawks. Nighthawks, where and it's very famous because now you have like not to be mistaken with the awesome Night Stallone Nighthawks, or which we'll get to at some point, or I'm the sure. the uh, the Tom Waits album Nighthawks at the diner. There, but there is a and it now you see it's it you know they have like you know um, James Dean and Marilyn yeah. Monroe and Humphrey Bogart hanging out on this. So, but I guess for some reason D'Argento really liked that painting Nighthawk. Yeah. Nighthawks, and then he ended up recreating. So I'm like, how much of that budget went to like in the middle of this 
big like square. square yeah like roman square you know he has this really like art deco um, he builds he basically builds that like bar that diner yeah bar it's thing. a diner in, in it's you know it's night that's what they call people like you know nighthawks people who are up late hanging out at diners like taxi cab drivers you know people of the night you yeah. know that's hence you know the name nighthawks you know so his looks exactly like it but his looks a little more like a bar where people are in there like yeah. a cafe it's like it's called it's a blue, cafe in, in the movie it's called like blue bar or blue cafe or something yeah. like that and uh so they're not eating like you know eggs and bacon like because they don't have diners in europe or yeah. england or italy diners are an american thing so over there it's kind of it becomes a cafe so they're they're in this cafe and it's like he meets his friend um carlo carlo um and Carlos had a little drink. Which Carlos he, got a little bit of a drinking problem. Which we yeah. learn in the movie. And they, they, he's like, oh, Carlos, I haven't seen you in a while. They, they chat for a minute. And they're chatting, chatting, chatting about stuff in life. And Carlos down on his luck and he's but drinking But the, the blue bar is an interesting thing because it was like, it wasn't there. They built it yeah. for the movie as a set piece. And while filming, they would have to turn people away because people were like, hey, you know. You know <laughs> look this, at this cafe. <laughs> look at this new bar or whatever. So people would constantly be trying to get get into it and they'd be like no this is a film yeah. set and then when they finally tore when they went to tear it down like like the town or whatever wanted them to keep turn, it turn keep, wanted to wanted them to keep it there but uh so yeah it was just this, that'd be beautiful if they actually if it was they were assembled somewhere in some sort of like you know giallo or italian cinema museum you know what i mean that would be something to be like in you know our version of the american institute of film and history you yeah, know yeah. and anybody who doesn't know edward hopper go check him out great great artist in the 20th century um was based in new york and new england and connecticut so there's a lot of you know he said these these nice cityscapes and also he had a lot of coastline stuff of new yeah. england gorgeous painter now what's interesting about deep red is because we talk about like story not being that important in a lot of these movies deep red like for for no other reason is probably significant because it's like his most like intricate plot line. Yeah, and maybe the one that like actually makes the most sense. Yeah, throughout the because whole thing. a lot of as he starts going on, they kind of kind of you know like we said that the 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 plot gets somewhat convoluted, and then you know you have a lot of the first person of the killer. He loves having killers dressed in like black trench coats with black leather gloves, and then he for the POV plays the part yeah, Argento himself he, he's almost always the gloved hand or is always his hand that you see in now, the, Argento, the frame for those of you that haven't ever checked out Argento I mean I feel like there needs to be a disclaimer and when I used to talk about Argento in the horror film class that I taught for a few semesters and when I talk about Argento with people my friends of mine that haven't seen it I always feel like I have to disclaimer like there's like n typically never really a in between with people for Argento. It's usually like they either get it, they watch it, it connects with them on some level, they like Argento, or they watch it, it doesn't connect with them, and they don't like it. There's very little like in between between viewers. The way I, I always try to express how I feel like how, in my opinion, how an Argento movie really needs to be watched is you just need to like abandon like any kind of like cynicism about cinema about you know being sticklers about plot line you need to just like f check everything check all your baggage out the door and just experience it just let it like wash over you cuz in a lot of ways it's a very visceral experience the way he shoots his movies is always interesting always very specific to him always very stylized the music that he chooses which we will get into for sure in about this movie is always 
very specific <laughs> and you just it's a visceral experience you just need to let it wash over you and you can't get caught up in the details of like this doesn't make sense or like that's stupid yeah you just have to let it you know because uh, again with like well, the way the like way that. italian cinema is you know everything's always dubbed so you have to that's part of it like you can't get caught up in like that the that often it's poor dubbing you know you just have to let it happen and then when it's done, then you either don't you like it or you don't like it. I yeah. mean, there's, it, and for me, it's like I when I first when I first experienced it, it just like it clicked for me. What was your first picture? Do you remember for Argento? I don't either. My route was, I would imagine that you, you experienced it through me. I would. Oh yeah, I would assume. But did we did we see at the same time? No, it was we had a we had a roommate. Um, Chris, who I was very—he and I had become very close friends, and uh, and he's the one that kind of introduced it to me. Uh, one, we rented the black uh, Two Evil Eyes, which is a, an American movie that he—he—it's like an anthology where yeah. he and George, George Romero. Romero and Dario Argento each do kind of an adaptation of a Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah, with Tom Savini doing all the uh, special effects. And I saw, I think that's probably... 1990 prob circa, right? That's probably the... Yeah, that's probably the first Argento thing I saw. And even though his version of the Black Cat is unlike any other Argento movie... Starring Harvey Keitel. Starring the great Harvey Keitel yeah. in, like, the weirdest performance he's probably ever given. Yeah. Um, it just was an eye-opener to me. Like, you could never watch that movie and be like... See a Poe again. You know, well, like, you know, it's... And be like, that's an Argento movie. I mean, it is because he's got a style. He's an, He is an auteur. Um, but it's unlike any other movie he's ever done in terms of... I Even, you know, it's not a giallo, blah, blah, blah. It's... You think it's because he shot it over here and did it, like, you know, kind of American? Well, I just don't think that story... Uh, oh, lends itself to yeah, his kind of style. I mean, certainly it is when you watch it, it's like, it's Argento, but... It's not like the typical Argento movie. But I saw it, and it just, you know, I would imagine a lot of people probably don't care for it. But it just connected with me. On some I don't remember uh, Romero's uh, story being very good either. Romero's movie is not. His, it's, his it's for, segment let's just it. say it's forgettable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I remember not loving it. Um, it's certainly very forgettable, which is a shame because it's a post story that... Uh, I can't really think of the, the title of it that I that I like a lot. Um, but which, which does, one is it? The one where he's uh, it's the one where they hypnotize the guy. Oh, it's the as case he's dying. Of, the case the case of Voldemort or uh, Vol, Vol, Yeah, it, it takes place in Harlem where they they hypnotize the gentleman before he dies to see if he it's can an experiment to yeah. see if they can keep him talking to him even though he passes away. And there's a great they did that. Um, Corman did a great one of that with Vincent Price as the yeah. person who's dying. And the original story, yeah, it's up in Harlem, like at some rich guy's house. They do and it, it stars uh, the, Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins is in it. I mean, they try to make it like a bit of a noir-y type thing. I mean, they he, he, Romero takes a lot of liberties with the story, but um, but that's the, the Black Cat's first thing I saw in the Argento, and it is it is fucking kooky. I mean, it is off the wall, and it really was like this guy is nuts. <laughs> yeah, and then I remember. Uh, Chris and I were walking through the the the, the facts in the strange case of M. Valdemar is the story we're referencing. Great freaking story if you haven't never read it. And um, 
Tweevil Lies 1990 is is the adaptation we're talking about, and the one I just referenced was Tales yeah. of Terror. From now, 62. originally they wanted to more people like Carpenter was going to do one, like they were going to have like it was going to be like the original Masters of Horror. Oh, okay, you know, but it ended up just being Romero and uh, Argento. Um, around that time, walking through a coconuts music store. Ooh, that's a flash in the past. <laughs> yes, remember those. That means there's not any more, huh? I haven't seen any. Um, I don't Sad. think they exist anymore. It's like strawberries. Oh. I'm looking at the uh, budget bin, like the two dollar, <laughs> the two dollar videos, VHS tapes, and I pull out this movie called The Terror at the Opera. Yeah. And I'm with Chris, and Chris looks at it. He's like, "Oh, that's Dario Argento." He's like, "That, like that, that you'll you'll like that." He's like, "It's the guy that did Black Cat. You'll like you'll like his shit." Yeah. It turned out it was like the American cut of opera. And this is our this is our freshman, freshman year. Isn't it? So this is like '97. Yeah, '97, '98, maybe '98. And you were just you were just jonesing because um, uh, I didn't hip you to, but we both revisited because of me the thing. Yeah. And you were getting into Carpenter, and this is when you were getting into Fulci and your Bruce Campbell isms. Yeah, yeah. So this is when you were getting. Well, into... I was already really into Carpenter, but you did that. You when you watched the thing, we talk about it in the Thing podcast. Yeah. Um, I was like, yo, brother, have you seen it? And I was like, you know what? I haven't seen it in a long time. And I had become, I was very into In the Mouth of Madness yeah. and Prince of Darkness. So I was kind of on a Carpenter thing. Stuff, yeah. And then you kind of did hit me on to like revisiting that because I hadn't seen it in a long time. Yeah. And, and then it became like a full-fledged discussion. So you're basically like, you know, you, you have your, your... I'm a sponge for like, yeah. at that point. You have my, your radar on. I'm just radar like on. everything that's, especially if it's kind of like horror-related. Yeah. For some reason at that time. which Evil we, Dead, all that kind of stuff. There's a whole like bunch a, of stuff going on in that time that makes me receptive to that so, so uh, you, that's how I invented that's how I be, uh, that's how I got into Argento and then you got me because we'd go home to my house in Connecticut you'd stay over for a weekend doing bona fide sleepovers yeah yeah and we I, as we referenced before up in Connecticut in hand and we had that best video that had very hard to find obscure videos uh, and we also started of, going to hard conventions at the time yeah and I would, we I have, would pick um, up bootleg videos uh, we stuff. went to a couple of Fangora conventions in the city at the New Yorker hotel so when we went to the uh, best video who who really they really prided themselves on having out of print or not available titles we found their four five four flies yeah. in gray velvet and we found the bird with the crystal plumage and i think we did a double feature of those yeah, we came home we yeah. watched that's how i saw uh, my dad's big old four by three you know 16 inch television yeah, yeah. you know with the deep back <laughs> yeah, you know we watched action television yeah, we watched four flies in gray velvet and we watched bird with the crystal plumage and those movies are just like blew my mind because like what yeah. the hell's going on and, and then for years they were just one movie to me they're in and then i remember show. the following year going to a horror convention and buying like a bootleg of stenthal syndrome it, which I watched video, with you. Which was from a laser disc. Yeah. Like a Japanese laser disc bootleg. And then we watched that together. And we watched Trauma tra Trauma together with uh, Trauma, yeah. That was actually given to me as a gift by yeah. Chris and, uh, and and those movies we're talking about are in the nineties. Trauma's like the next one he did after I think he, Two Evil Eyes, maybe. Yeah, it was part of like his American. And then deal. like ninety six. Totally underrated in my personal opinion. Tra trauma. Yeah. I still yeah. I like that movie a lot. Yeah. Um but anyway, so that's how we kind of got into in it. An opera, you which you just said that in the it's uh, late '80s. Yeah, late thing. '80s bootleg bin is from the late '80s. So that's how you got into Argento. So yeah. getting back to, to Deep Red, uh, we have um, the, the the. So we're talking about the story. And yeah, how you need to experience it. So, but this movie is kind of stands apart as being like one of his most like intricate storylines, and they give a lot of credit to Bern, uh, Bernardino Zapponi. 
Bernardino Bernardino Zappoli 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 he was the co-writer on this he, and co- he co-wrote it and he was best known for being a collaborator with uh, Fellini ah and he said at the time but he also wrote a book and that's why uh, Argento knew him well, that's why he wanted to write with them because he had written a book called uh, Fantasma a Roma, which is like the ghost of Rome or sorry, in Rome or something like that. And uh, um, Zappolini uh, talks about how they came together, they wanted to do a movie, and that, like you said, Argento had this really interesting opening, the uh, paranormal yeah. uh, medium, and then they started to devise ways of. Um, killing people, but they said they, you know, people, people have abstract. No one really knows, you know, how what it feels like to be shot by a gun or yeah. to be stabbed. So they were trying to think, oh, you know, why don't we tr- come up with deaths that people kind of have a yeah. reference to, which Something is kind that, of horrifying. Yeah, well, like, yeah, exactly. Like the uh, the idea of being shot, you can only most people. Yeah, unless you were in the war or something, or you know, can only imagine what that feels like. But everybody knows what like blunt force trauma feels yeah, like. Yeah, if you if you hit yourself uh, or to a, be burned. Yeah, you scold yourself while cooking on some boiling water, <laughs> or you're walking through your apartment, you stub your toe, or you hit the side of a, you know of your coffee table. You 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 know how that feels. So they're like, why don't we take that? And we'll turn those into freaking deaths. Yeah, in, in this movie, or, or getting cut. So they, they kind of worked their death. And there's not a lot of death. There's only what four deaths in this movie. You know, it's all very much investigation, but the deaths yeah. are horrific. You know, I was, th- and I'm, you know, when you first see it, you kind of think like, oh, maybe you know, it's going to be like a, like a, a shit show with like like scream or like there's yeah, a death yeah. every t- ten to fifteen minutes. But no, this is uh, very well choreographed so so they work i mean they work kind of i think separately for the most part and then they'd come in and kind of work together like they'd both bring ideas to it Uh, but saponi is really they get you know argento is the kind of director that likes to take full credit for things and he is an auteur and uh, those movies would not be those movies without his guidance so in in some way it's warranted but he also does not like his girlfriend, who he meets on this movie, Daria Nicolodi, becomes the one she's of the lead, and female. she's the reporter, right? In this movie, she plays the reporter. Yeah, um, he he meets her before this movie, but she gets cast in this movie. They become an item. She's the one that actually comes up with the story for Suspiria, uh-huh. based on stories. He had a grandmother who was, in her words, a white witch. And how all the black witches hated her grandmother, but her but her grandmother was a very powerful white witch, and so she would hear these stories about witchcraft and stuff, and so she relayed this to Argento. So she's very much the impetus. Without Suspiria, without Dario Nicolodi, Suspiria would not exist. Yeah, and he does not give her like any credit. Really, <laughs> Dario like, Argento. Just, doesn't he mean. leaves her off like the screenplay credit, and so Argento is a guy that just he takes credit to him. They're his. They're his. And films. is that Asia's mother? As Asia's mother. I'm sorry, yeah. Asia. Uh, Argento had a previous uh, marriage and had a daughter named Fiore, uh, and then he never marries Dario Nicolodi, but they're together for about ten years. And out of I'm giving that, her no credit, <laughs> you sit in the back of the room, and, <laughs> and she content, She's in his movies. After they break up, but their daughter is Asia Argento, who's a, a turns big, into a, actress. Who's, a, who's an actress and a very pretty big star in Italy. Yeah. Well, she um, was big here. She's in the Triple X movies. She's in Trauma. Uh, she's she's in, like raped, and you see her. Don't you see her breasts and all kinds of weird stuff he does to his daughter in Trauma? 
Yeah, trauma. She's in trauma. She's in the stent house. I mean, she becomes his his girl. heroine. Yeah. in the the in the movies, like the she becomes what David Hemmings is in this movie, yeah. the protagonist. Yeah. Um. So Hemmings, um, he leaves his jam session. We wrap up with the psyche, uh, the paranormal meeting that she said she you know she collapsed seeing uh, some sort of thing. They uh, him he meets his friend Carlo in the square by the Ed Hopper. Uh, Nighthawk's Diner, which is now a cafe. They're chatting for a bit. Uh, Hemming says his goodbyes to um, to Carlo. To they Carlo, shoot, they shoot the shit for a few minutes. Yeah, as Carlo walks out and, and wa- leaves. Meanwhile, we're intercut with uh, with oh, that yeah, happening yeah. before it's, that it, even happens. It's intercut with the psychic getting back to her apartment. She's fucking around in her apartment. Her apartment's very nice. It has a lot of paintings on the wall. It's very much. Um, you know, very a lot modern, of weird, like very weird type. Yeah, <laughs> very know, like, like uh, you know, once maybe Night Gallery was off television. She bought all of, uh, <laughs> you know, she bought up the props. Yeah, pictures. she brought all the uh, Rod Serling Night Gallery pictures, and she has them on her wall. And then she has a nice big window that overlooks this square yeah, that yeah. they're down in. So she uh, ends up getting murdered. Yeah, and it's a very long. Murder. She opens the door, and this gloved hand. Brings down this meat cleaver into like her yeah, chest, <laughs> oh, and then she boom, and she's getting hacked to death by this big meat cleaver, and then it's intercut with, with our man uh, Hemmings and Carl, like ah, you good? I'm good too. I'm drunk. You drunk? Okay, and then prolonged death scene in the last part is he says his goodbyes to Carlo Hemmings yeah. and he like turns and looks up and he sees this woman in, well, in a they, window he, yeah they hear a scream and they don't really think oh yeah they there's do. like a weird joke where he's like maybe there's a woman getting raped because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in Italy yeah, Hemmings and is like, like what is that there was a scream in the distance yeah and, and Carlo's like yeah maybe she's getting raped who cares yeah like, okay <laughs> I'm from England we, we, we care about <laughs> things like that yeah it's bad allora let's talk I like to change the subject. You like Ed Hopper? No? Okay, let's change the subject again. You like a drinking, don't you? So they're, they're talking that, uh, yeah, they hear the scream during the conversation. They make nothing of it. And then they say their goodbyes. He looks up at the window. He sees a woman in this window. And then classic Argento, woman gets freaking impaled through the window. Yeah, like her head breaks through the window. And then her throat is impaled she on impales broken her, glass. Yeah, shard. on the shards. And then she's there. And then the guy's like, ah! And then Hemmings runs up into the to the, to the uh, apartment. Kicks, I guess the door's open. Gets in there. Yeah. And then he's doing the job of taking the head off. But as he runs in, he's looking around. He checks out all the paintings and stuff like that. And then... um. Makes it to the to the window. She's clearly dead. He takes her off. And I at this point, you say there's a plot here where the cops are going to come think he did it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do it. And then he's going to run. Yeah, like he'll north, punch north, north by yeah. northwest. Style. Yeah, he'll he'll punch one of the officers in the face for some odd reason, a constable, and then he'll run out. And then it's like I have to clear my name. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, it's not that. Not that at all. He looks down. He sees Carlo still. He looks through the window. He sees his friends Carlo still down there. And then he sees this trench coated person, like walking away. Yeah, not running, walking away out of the scene. Dark trench coat, with nice big old Stetson hat with a big old brow, so you can't see anything. Leaving the area, and then he's like, Carlo's like, oh no. And so, cops are come, and then we have these wacky cops, very much. You know, yeah. I, I love how all the sergeants in these movies are very much larger than life, and that goes back to like we even talk about the Charlie Chan movies or whatever. You always have to have the the, the local sergeant like, I'm not gonna pick anything from anybody, <laughs> you know, spitting coffee out when he gets. This is the cold coffee with the hot coffee. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, there now it's a poli- now it's a police scene, you know. Now it's a murder scene, and he's being uh, questioned by the police chief. And the other notable thing about 
Deep Red, which I guess gets cut out a lot of the uh, in the American version, is that there is a lot of comedy. Yeah, there's a lot. You of, know that the because the, the this is when our reporter shows up. The here. police detective is definitely like a little bit of comic relief, and he's like, "What are you doing? Are you from here? What are you doing here? Are you from America?" He's like, "Well, I spent some time in America." He's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Well, I'm a piano player." And he's like, "You know, there's this." And I teach at the conservatory. And he's like, oh, so you have a job? You know. Like, yeah, he's like, he's laughing. He's like, you know, so so you he's he's trying to insinuate that, you know, you, you can't make any money off of playing instruments, so you have a real job. But he's very definitely a comic relief. And then that's very much like what your parents would say to you. You know, <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? You want to be a musician? Jesus, get a real job. You know, it's like that. And Daria Nicolodi uh, playing the role of Gianna, the reporter. She shows up. She plays basically a reporter for like a tabloidy. Yeah, type. I forget how she finds out. Maybe she was tipped magazine. off that something had happened. She and, comes here and she sees David Hemmings. She's like, "You're the witness." Yeah, and uh, they end up forming a relationship. Like a and then alliance. there's a lot of comedy in there too. Yeah. So there's a the you know there is there's some. And this is where this is what got cut out to the American version. A lot of the interplay of their comedy, yeah. the the back and forth in the scenes with the two of them, like um, being again for the lack of a better term the. Like Grant and Hepburn, kind of back yeah. and forth or whatever, like you know. Yeah, and it, you know, the romantic it, and it spar works. sparring. I mean, it's yeah, genuinely it's like kind of funny. Yeah. And you know, it also goes to the credit probably because they're good actors. You know yeah, what I mean? So definitely. You, you can't have it be you know they're shitty and it's not. It's you know it's. Little, I mean, even though she's dubbed in English, and I don't think it's her real voice, yeah. but uh, it's still it works. There's like a, there's a chemistry there. They're both good. He's surprisingly good in this movie. A lot yeah. of people get kind of. Uh, there's a very funny dichotomy that goes on between actors and Argento. Everybody talks about Ar Argento hates actors. Hitchcock was right, they're cattle, you know, kind of thing. And uh, he doesn't give a fuck. He's more uh, interested in the camera moves, which are plentiful. In this That's movie. another thing to mention we should get into, that the, that the camera doesn't stop. The camera's almost like, if you talk about other movies where, like, say, the city is a character in the movie or the landscape, in this movie, almost the camera is its own character, like, yeah. running around. Like, there's a scene where... Uh, later on in the movie where something someone's going to open the door to an apartment so you, the camera's on the principal it's almost like it's an animal the camera's yeah. looking at our principal actor in the scene and then the camera on its own runs away yeah. and runs up to the to say the, the front door and then you see the, the doorknob turning and it's very freaky to think that like like I said, like an it's like an animal, or it's someone else, like giving you that knowledge of look what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And instead of cutting, instead of cutting from say that person to the door, yeah. the camera will just runs, and it's 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 genius. The whole movie is just the camera doesn't like stopping. But our, but the funny thing is, you know, everybody will talk about how Argento hates actors, but then you you talk to the actors, and they're all like, oh, the working with Dario was great. <laughs> you know, they all have pleasant memories of working with him, um, and uh, but because. You know, plot and things are typically not that important As in Argento's explained. movies. Yeah. Uh, per genre. You could argue that the performances suffer, yeah. typically, for those reasons. But I think David Hemmings, he really brings it. He's a talented guy. He was grew up, He started up in theater. He, of course, he was in Blow Up. We talked about it. He worked forever still. He was in Gladiator. I mean, he, he he's in one of our favorite movies that you turned me on to. Uh, uh, Murder by Decree. Oh, by wow. Bob Clark. Okay. Um, I mean, he, he grew, as he grew older, he kind of filled out. He became less recognizable. Maybe that's as, how I don't, As yeah. the guy in Deep Red. Yeah, who but, is he in Gladiator? Do you know offhand? I haven't seen the movie since it came out. The, yeah, I haven't seen it since the theater. Um, what's his face is in that we love? What's his name? Uh, who died doing that picture? 
uh, who's in freaking um, yeah, burnt he, offerings and he's in the brood and the brood great at, great very large uh, Oliver Reed Oliver Reed yeah. God bless Oliver Reed he's up there with like a, who who would win a drinking match between Oliver Reed and George C. Scott <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> uh, that's that's a that's a question Mr. Owl we'll have to pose it to Mr. Owl but the we world have, will never know sorry but you're right we have these really great performances by uh, our principals yeah by Hemmings Nickelodeon's great in it she, yeah. this is her first movie with Argento she ends up becoming in a lot of ways his muse she's in a lot of his movies even after they break up she's in opera and spoiler alert for people who haven't seen opera yet uh he's like you need to be in opera and he's like why is it because i need to kill you <laughs> so she's in that movie specifically so he can come up with she's in his movies basically so she can come up with weird ways you know, to kill her there's a very funny story which i think i might stop us down to talk about very quickly we had an, an in film school you know the story in film school we had a, an acting teacher named lazlo zabo and lazlo lazlo zabo was a very famous uh, genre French actor. He was in a lot of uh, Jean-Luc Godard movies. Yeah, Truffaut's movies. Truffaut's Big movies. part of the French New Wave, even though he wasn't French. He was yeah, Hungarian. But... but he was part of the French New Wave because he got in with those guys. And His his name is Laszlo Zabo, but in those movies he was always Laszlo Koufax because Laszlo Koufax was like John Smith over there in, in Europe and France. So anyway, so he's there circuit 98, 97, 98. He's teaching acting class. And uh, Blake and I become friends with him. So we'd go out to the pub with him and drink and talk and he'd tell us stories about hanging out with Catherine Deneuve. He told us he betted Catherine Deneuve. And <laughs> yeah, he told and us that, Burn. <laughs> Yeah, you know, all these people, and he's telling us about the glory days of who he's met and who he's hung out with. So near the end of the, our freshman year, we're doing our freshman films, and he's like, I'd like to see the cut of, you know, your movie. I'd like to see your cut. So I take him to see my movie. My movie's a, a serial killer film. And... Um, in it, it's it's a serial killer, and in one scene, he's killing a hooker. So we go to the room. In the old days, you know, it was we, we shot film, so we're in the room with the editing equipment, with the steam backs, with the movieolas, that the reel to reel, like the actual thing, and we're watching it on the little screen, uh, the editing screen, and he's watching the scene with the hooker, and he stops me. He goes, "Let me ask you a question. The hooker, is that your girlfriend?" And I go, "Yeah, it is actually my girlfriend." He goes, "That's funny." He goes. All my friends, they put their wives in their pictures and they kill them. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, you can only kill them once you understand, because the second time it is for real. <laughs> and I've always remembered that. I was like, okay, Lazo, thank you very much. Let's <laughs> start this back up. I thought that was a very funny thing. Sorry. Yeah, okay, Lazo. God bless him. My Lazo's favorite Lazo story is he he was a huge lover of Buster Keaton. Oh yes. And was probably very pivotal in my obsession with Buster Keaton as well cuz he lent me like tapes of Buster Keaton. That's movies. the thing, you know, Laszlo was so giving where he had that original uh, uh Hitchcock Truffaut book where Truffaut interviews Hitchcock. He had it signed by Truffaut like, "Hey, great seeing you again. Let's hang out soon to, you know, my yeah. friend." And then he lent it out to us. Yeah. You know, and then some a friend of ours wasn't giving it back in time and my you know, it was like that, that upset me. He's like, "Give the fucking it's, you know." Yeah, yeah. So he I was mean, it's a big fucking deal. Yeah, he was given signed stuff out. by Truffaut. <laughs> yeah, signed by Truffaut like to a good friend, you know what I mean? Like so anyway, so uh your so, Buster Keaton. So when I started getting Buster Keaton and my one of the films I made was uh, an homage to Buster Keaton, but uh was in film school. Yeah, in film school. And so he would lend me these tapes, and I got very into Buster Keaton very much because of him. And he has my favorite story is he, he sat at a table with Buster Keaton at a film festival. Yeah. And he's like, I sat with Buster Keaton. And he's like, and I made him laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he, just, he took such pride in that that he it made is. my stone face. He made the stone. You face know, laugh. I mean, for myself, I met the comedian Eddie Izzard once where I work, and I started talking because I'm a huge Eddie Izzard fan. It was just the two of us, and he made a joke, and I laughed, and then I realized he made a joke just for me. 
Yeah. And that was like special. And then like I have a James Mason impression and my James Mason impression is uh, off of his James Mason yeah. impression. So we started throwing James Mason impressions back. And then my somebody- My James Mason impression is off of your James Mason impression. <laughs> Which is James Mason. AC, Eddie Izzard. So it's just fun to, when you have those intimate moments where like something happens, like, you know, and it's like, oh, he, you know, you, Lonslow made Buster laugh. It's like, wow, you know, that's, you remember that to your grave. <laughs> but <laughs> never kill her twice. <laughs> so. so Dario Nicolodi and Dario Argento. Yeah. Um, so we get the comedic factor, which, you know, there are, you can, there's definitely some funny stuff in Bourbon Crystal Plumage, but comedy, inten- let's say intentional comedy. Yeah. But it is, works. Is not, is not typical of Argento's movies. No. People will laugh at them because of uh, campiness or a datedness. Yeah. Um, but intentional comedy, not as big of a thing in our set of movies. And this movie is chock full of it and it works. Yeah. And it works good, especially in the original Italian cut, if you see it in its entirety. And maybe that's goes to the further point of why this movie was such a commercial, an international commercial success, as well as regarded as probably aside from in America, Suspiria being his, you know, will you talk to somebody in a, that's who's Italian. Yeah. He lives in Italian. This is interesting, too. Here's another story of ours, because you had a guitar player. <laughs> uh, guitar player, but every time, because I'm such an Argento fan, every time I would meet somebody that was from Italy, I would ask them about Dario Argento. Because you hear things about Dario Argento that he's huge there. Yeah. That he's a big deal. Of course. You know? So yeah, I'm always curious, like, is that true? Like, yeah. how big is he? And I worked on a film. I produced and... Uh, was the director of photography on a on a feature film that never saw the light of day? But that's a part. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But the one of the lead actors in it was it was Italian. Yeah. Um, not Italian American from Italy. Off the boat. Off the plane. So I said, you know, uh, I said, let me ask you a question. I want to how like how big is Dario Argento over there? And he's like. He's like Spielberg here. Like wow. that's how but he's the Italian Spielberg. Which is which is profound to think that like, you know, Spielberg makes movies that you can argue are fucked up and yeah. very demeaning to children, but you know, uh you know, he it's he is regarded here as a family, you know, everyone will take their board. And the movie that every Italian cites as being like the movie is deep red. They're like, oh Profondo Rosso, scariest movie of all time. It's yeah. like I can't even watch it again. Like they all have seen Profondo like Profondo Rosso, Deep Red well, we haven't talk- is the movie. We haven't talked about Goblin or Claudio Simonetti yet, but people I saw a little uh featurette in the in he, Simonetti was saying that people for years will come up to him and say, I guess the score for in Deep Red is, yeah. it's almost like, I wouldn't say like Hitchcock Psycho, yeah. but it's like, it's very thought-provoking. It's freaky. Once people hear that, they start getting scared. And I mean, yeah. you got to think of the time this came out in. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I it's said, like, it's one of these movies, like, look at Psycho. Psycho only has, what, three murders in it, I think, maybe? Yeah. You know, Janet Lee, uh, what's his, Martin Balsam, and maybe, I forget, there's somebody else in there. So it's like, you think of these movies, and it's it's crazy to think that like you think of it it's a horror movie that's chock full of but it's your mind playing tricks yeah, on you yeah. you know so and I used to have a, like the guitar player I used to have a guitar player in my band who was from Italy and I asked him I said what about Argento and he his response was very funny because he was very much like um, it's like he was saying he's not that big like he's he's not that big of a deal over there but then he just kept on like as he went on in the conversation, just, he was yeah, he was just like contradicting. He like corrected himself through slowly. And he was doing, he's not that big. And at the end, it was like, oh, but everybody knows who he is, and everybody's seen Deep Red. And, and the thing is, there he's a star. He's a bona fide star. When people, when you when he walks down the street, people flock to him. Yeah, I mean, it's like because not only is he make does he make these movies, but he starting with 
door in the darkness the, the tv show the in tv the 70s. show he's been on television yeah. and you make uh, talking him- to alan jones they for soccer games uh, you know european football they will have him in as a commentator to talk about <laughs> soccer games. I wonder if he's a big soccer You know, fan. like he's... Yeah, he's, 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 he's a face that and everybody knows. You said to me, as well as getting into reality TV, they, they all have their own versions of whatever show we have or England has. He becomes one of these celebrity guest judges. Yeah. Well, his uh, Asia, I don't know if she's off it now, but this year Asia was on the Italian version of Dancing with the Stars, and he was on it, like, supporting his dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's really so, so, so much so where, in my personal opinion, his movies kind of waned in recent years yeah. after the 80s but or in maybe 90s but he's still very much within the public light because he's still doing these yeah, appearances he's, on shows. he's you know and that's very you know you he may not make a movie in 20 years which in this case he's been making movies but at least he's still there he's not like you yeah, know li- yeah. like hiding away like a stanley kubrick you know living in his house like he's uh, very much like a hitchcock like you said like uh, carpenter tells a story where he and he was in italy or something they were somewhere together and he and Dario Argento went to see like an Egyptian exhibit at a museum, and which, first of all, just think like how awesome that is to go with uh, that John Carpenter and Dario Argento hanging like, out, are going to a museum to see an Egyptian. Yeah. And what year is this? <laughs> and they're both very into wrestling, so they would often talk about wrestling. And that's why a lot of people don't know, but we're getting off on topic. That's why Carpenter cast Roddy Piper because yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a big wrestling fan. Who knew? Um, and. For they live. And Carpenter says that, like, the most astonishing thing was to see how the kids love him. Like, wow. the, you know, because it's a museum and there was, like, school field trips there and stuff. So children, and children are, children are, are like, flocking around. Well, you know, it's Benjamin, no, I'm So you're Dario. right to think that he's... Uh, He's transcended these, yeah, these that, genres and cultures, and he's basically making the equivalent of either John Carpenter or Gorier. He's doing the equivalent of like I don't know at the time Ty West today or, yeah, or yeah. freaking uh, uh, you know somebody who's you know making yeah, like, like Eli Roth, yeah, you know, whatever. But he's there out there like you know James Wan. I mean he's uh, he's making violent movies. Now this because of this story, I mean it's a, it's a decent segue into the music of the movie, which originally he hires uh, Giorgio Gasolini. A, 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 Gasoline. A, a, a composer, like more of a classical composer, who's pretty famous in Italy. Uh, tours, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a name. Gasolini, I think, also worked with Argento on Five Days in Milan and that TV show we keep talking about, uh, Door into Darkness. So he works with Gasolini on... He hires, hires him for Deep Red. And Gasolini... Th- there's, there is obviously two sides there or more to every story. But eventually, uh, that relationship on Deep Red doesn't work out. Gasolini says it's because Argento told him he'd have three weeks or have like a full month or something like that. He had 30 days, and then Argento comes back. He's like, you only have 20 days. Gasolini's like, well, I can't do it in that time. So here's what I have, and then leaves. Argento and other people say that he's listening. He starts to listen to the things that Gasolini is writing, and Argento is in his head just like it's not right for this movie like gasoline he's just not getting what i want from this yeah you know for this movie he doesn't understand it so uh whatever the story is whatever the truth is he really they, they part ways yeah he tries to get Pink and also Floyd and also right? gasoline is a touring musician at that time so it's also taking a lot of time away from what he can do yeah argento big rock guy yeah. loves rock you know 
uh, during trauma, the making of trauma, he shut down production for uh, like a whole day so that they could go so that and he took like everybody to go see the like the Rolling Stones because they were on tour at the yeah. time here in America. You know, like big rock and roll guy. He's a young guy. I mean, he's like he's in his twenties. Yeah. He's reinventing a genre, uh, some, yeah. a popular subgenre. He wants this new sound. Even the music that Mar- Marconi did for the trilo- for the Animal trilogy is, for the most part, young and hip. It's very jazz yeah, fusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, very it's nice. less rock. Yeah. Um, Four Flies and Grey Velvet is a little more rock. It's probably the most rock score that Marconi ever did, but it's still not yeah. like super rocky. Um, so he's like, you know. Like everybody, people are obsessed with with British rock, you know. Yeah. So he's like, he loves Deep Purple, he loves Pink Floyd. He goes to England because he wants to meet with Pink Floyd about them doing the music for Deep Red. I don't even know if he ever got that far. They weren't interested. He comes back. That would have been. Imagine how different because then you see. I think Pink Floyd shows up in Manhunter, maybe. The end of Manhunter, yeah. they're in that client. So you just think of like how meta that would have been of having Pink <laughs> Floyd be in there doing deeper. That that would have been an awesome, like a lost, like Lalo Schifrin's lost and if you soundtrack watched, to, uh, uh, to to Exorcist. Like, yeah, and <laughs> if you watch uh, the documentary about uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, yeah, he wanted Pink Floyd to write music for for that, wow. uh, and then that film never got made. But um, so Italy, so he comes back to Italy and he's asking around. Uh, Carlo Bixio runs a record label called Cinevox, which does a lot of soundtracks and stuff. And he's talking to Carlo, and he's like, you know, I really want a rock band to do the score for this. I want Pink Floyd. I want Deep Purple. Uh, Bixio's like, Dario, what are you talking about? <laughs> Get your chair. He's like, there are plenty of Italian bands that could do this for you. Yeah, and he says, sh- maybe some girls <laughs> getting raped. No, no, let's keep it talking. <laughs> So he says, uh, there's this Italian band called Cherry Five. Yeah. He's like, they just cut a record. Take the record home. Listen to it. Just give them a chance. So he takes it home, and there's the history of Goblin could Fill a hole. could warrant an entire podcast series. Of course. Since so, you've, you've interviewed uh, Claudio yeah. Simonetti, the head of Goblin, and, and another... And another the, member of Goblin. Yeah. It's just like the history of Goblin is complicated and intricate and long. But he takes Cherry... So there's this thing about Cherry 5 uh, that doesn't need... You read about it if you... Cherry 5 was the name that the record label came up with. The name of the band was actually Oliver. Okay. And for some reason, when the record came out, it said Cherry 5 <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Claudio's like, like, what? Hey. like, what the fuck? Hello, it's, not the, it's not even the name of the band. Adiamo. <laughs> so he takes, Cherry Five, takes the Cherry Five record home, and there's a specific track on it that opens with like wind and voices and stuff, and he's listening to it with Dario Nicolodi, and he's like, that's it. These are my guys. Like, it's got like an eerie feel to it. Dario Nicolodi likes the band a lot. That's uh, his, his girlfriend His at girlfriend the time. at the time. Because they're both Dario. Yeah, so... He says, fine, I'm in. Like, these guys are it. So he goes back. They sets up with uh, the members of Goblin. Car- uh, to this day, Claudio Simonetti is a collaborator of Argento's. I asked uh, Claudio in my book, uh, Score to Death Plug. Check it out. It's on pre-order for Amazon. Whoa! I said, uh, you know, what was it like? Had you seen his movies before? Like, did you know who he was? And he's like, yeah, of course. He's like, I've seen his movie. I loved his movies. He, he, you know, relating to the story that was kind of our rough segue into this, it's his analogy was we were tw- like 22-year-old guys and it was like if 
Steven Spielberg walked into the, the room and was like, I want you to write music for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was, he was a big fucking deal. Yeah. And he comes in and he's like, I want you to write the music. For my so, new Tahara movie. So he plays them records, tons of records. Uh, Mike Oldfield's uh, Tubular Bells, which became famous because of, uh, not because of, but it's, it's in use of film, it's famous because Friedkin used it in The Exorcist. Yeah. Which, having written a book about horror film music, the fact that... Which is coming, the, movie, Fr- the book coming out. Friedkin put that in there, changed the game. Yeah. Influenced, you know, uh, Goblin, then Carpenter, yeah. Tangerine Dream, who then... Uh, freaking kind of introduces into the realm himself, but all this comes from the fact that tubular bells is used in The Exorcist. So he play, one of the things is tubular bells um, plays him all this kinds of stuff, probably a lot of Pink Floyd, and kind of lets them run wild. Of now, course, is, is the story that they they actually pen like two or three tracks in one night? Well, yeah, because they the whole thing was probably obviously they had seen a cut of the movie by that point. Ah, by that okay. point we're in post, but um, they weren't composing to the picture that's why in italian movies a lot of it the the music cuts and stuff are very kind of almost jarring because they're actually not composing to picture they see the movie and then they go back they just do like and they just do a session they yeah they just record a bunch of music and then dario and the editor sit there and just chop it in you know that's the way it worked not just with dario with everybody and it's a very it's part of like the whole style of those italian exploitation movies is how the music is cut in because um, yeah, here, one, one or two cuts here were just stopped. <laughs> yeah, it's you like know. it's not even like the band cuts. It's they don't even like, fade it out. They just cut the tape. Yeah, there it is. They just put some leader on afterward. Um, so what they do is they take some of Goblin. Gas, what Goblin does, and they become named Goblin because they were basically like, well, we have this other thing going on with Oliver or AKA Cherry Five, and this is that doesn't sound that great for a heart for this kind of movie. And we also don't want to get them to confuse because we don't want to be pigeonholed as the guys that do film scores. So let's call ourselves Goblin uh, for this. Yeah. For and deep, then we'll have red. we'll have like two bands. It'll be the same guys, but we'll be like Cherry Five yeah. or Oliver. It's almost like what an author does. Like Stephen King will, there's too much Stephen King out there, so he'll write under the, yeah. what's, his, what's his pen name? He has another pen name. So he yeah, just yeah. puts the fountain in its way. So they become, so they call themselves Goblin. What they do is they take some of Gasolini's uh, original stuff before he left. That he left. And they play it. Yeah, they re-record it. Do a, they change some of the arrangements? But they record it as Brilliant. as, as, as Goblin. Yeah. So if you get the original LP, the the piece of vinyl, pressed vinyl, the the side B, side two is all of Gasolini. Everything the cast, not everything that he wrote, but everything that was released that they did. It's like, is it Gasolini playing it? Or no, there, it's the Goblin's arrangements. Of there's Gasolini's like the, the lullaby, I think, is Gasolini playing it and maybe one other track, but the rest is Goblin playing Gasolini's so compositions. So that lullaby that we keep hearing that's echoed through, we have to get this cast going because yeah, we're, yeah. we're so um, saturated with information. Yeah. That lullaby we hear, that's actually Gasolini's Gasolini lullaby, wrote that, which is yeah. a haunting lullaby. Yeah. You know, any kind of, I've learned any kind of lullaby in a horror movie's frightening. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. And the first side of the album is... Played by Goblin and written by Goblin. Yeah. You know, to get off the music thing, that album becomes a number one hit. Yeah. Like, that was a huge hit 
Wow. The, the soundtrack to that album was like well, maybe that's why we sold a million, sold millions of copies. Won like the Italian Grammys version of the Grammys was a huge thing, and that's why they've been cobbling ever since because they became huge stars based because on of that, that album. And I wonder if that's why it's so polarizing that soundtrack that they have people still coming up to him saying that when I hear that, you know, yeah. those, that music. Well, that like know. arpeggiating stuff is sounds a little bit like uh, tubular bells uh, in the in the main theme, and then of course Carpenter. You know, has a similar vibe to the Halloween theme. Well, he takes a he Carpenter, which is I guess we can get into later, but he he's heavily influenced by this movie, as is some other people that or well, uh, Argento likes to say, yeah, for Halloween too. According to, according to Carpenter, before he made Halloween, he had only seen Suspiria. Yeah, was the first was really the only thing, he which had is seventy seven, right? Suspiria's like seventy, yeah, seventy seven ish. Yeah, and then Halloween is seventy eight. Okay, um, and so. That was a huge hit. To go into, you know, to get into the more of like the film theory type stuff, if we're talk, since we're on the music, you talk about the lullaby. Yeah. Um, now, it's an interesting device here because it's something that the killer needs to be able to perform the murder. It becomes both diegetic within the film and non-diegetic outside the film. It's something that we hear as a viewer that That's, that carries the movie but it's, it's something it's but it's something He'll that turn on. that the killer will turn on on a tape Which player means it's diegetic so we get to it's one it clues us into something that the murder is going to happen it's the it's the device that the murder needs to take them into that mind's place so we start to it look it also becomes a haunting thing that that Hemmings has to go track down and he finds a copy of it, it become, on a yeah, chunk, it you know, becomes like, like, like a I'm very hearing. diegetic part you know, of and that leads the, him the narrative. on his uh the clue uh, down the road of clues to figure out. Then the next step is he finds out that there is a woman who wrote a, an, a female author who wrote a book on, yeah, cel- uh, cel- celebrated f- local folklore. Yeah. And there was a murder in this house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, where um, uh, people were killed and the child was left on its own and it's become very polarized or very, uh, you know, for the locals. So then our Hemmings like, oh, I'm going to go search out. Sure. Maybe this has something to do. In a nutshell. Basically, we talked about Hemmings' witnesses this murder. Of the psychic. The story. Him and the reporter What becomes on. the narrative, in a nutshell, is basically... Immediately, Hemmings realizes that there's something weird about the... There's something weird about the murder site. And he can't put his finger yeah, on something it. Something that happened that night when he was in there. He, he knows something... He's, he thinks that a, a painting was taken away. Something was not there. Something strange. Something and, was there when he saw it, but then when, when by the time the cops got there, something was moved, and he's, he's, he keeps telling... And that's a device that has become, for Argento kind of, but also in this giallo, because I think the Palma does it in a couple of his early movies, where it's like there's a clue within the memory yeah. that the, the, well, the, the totally. character... It's, it's something that Argento is... I'd say 95% of Argento's movies, 90% of Argento's movies are fueled by a protagonist that witnesses something like a murder if not a murder and then there's something about the murder that doesn't sit right with them a memory that is lost or something that they know there's more to it they brush over it's that obsession that drives them through the story to solve the murder so for hemmings it's this idea of like there's something weird about this site so i'm remembering it differently and that becomes his motivation when we get into de palma or the conversation it be, they have the device of like the tape player, yeah. But in, I, but I, in Deep Red, it's all in his memory. There's no 
like exterior thing to examine. Yeah, they can't go back and rewind, listen to it, rewind, listen. There's something there. It's like, you know, um, Sixth Sense where you, know, you turn it up and you can hear the whispering of the ghost talking to the kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will give credit to Argento where, uh, you know, a lot of times these kind of people, this is the, the kind of thing that like... Um, People used to get mad at like English authors with like, you know, when they kill somebody and leave a body in the room and that would be the reason for a crime where they'd leave a fact out until the last scene. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, oh, of course, the audience couldn't figure it out because only Harky Perot could because he knew that uh, that clue that was left out for us. For Argento's credit, that clue that we're talking about here is in that shot when we yeah, walk yeah. in. And if you don't see it, you may not notice it. And I remember when I watched this with my wife, I showed it to her. She saw it. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't even see it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, that's so, the interesting thing. So my point is, no, sorry, just to finish my point is, a lot of times you'll see trickery. Yeah. Where well, even at the end of the movie, you know, yeah. it'll be slipped back in. You're like, that wasn't in the original cut. Even you Argento know? is guilty of that. Oh, he is, but, but not, not in this movie. But not in this movie. Yeah. And this, he plays by, he plays fair, and what's there is there. But you also have to take into account that this is at a time where you saw this in the movie theater, and that was it. There was no rewinding. Of course, of course. You know, like yeah. you weren't gonna like projectionist. Wait, hold up. Yeah. Rewind it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you saw it, and maybe you saw it one time. Yeah. You know, there was no home video. So to slip something like that by them, and we'll obviously we'll explain it very, uh, you know, soon in terms of what that clue is. But this is what drives him. And then he forms this partnership with the photographer. The reporter. She's interested yeah. in the... Uh, well, it's funny. She takes a picture of him, and she's like, all right. Then the next day, it's like front page of the paper. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, he, he, has, he witnessed the <laughs> And he knows who did it. So then later on in the movie... We have a uh, where he's at his apartment, and uh, there's an attempt on his life by the killer, and he's luckily able to like uh, shut the door in time. And you hear very haunting. You hear the killer like, "I know you're gonna die soon," and that's always freaky for me. And he kind of like you can't tell if it's a male or female. Just a whisper like, "I'm here, and I'm gonna kill you next." Like, and it's funny. Like, uh, I put a note in my notepad when we're watching this movie. Like. He's on the front page of the major, like, you know, Rome newspaper saying, I know who the killer is, or I saw the killer, and, like, he's leaving his door unlocked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, ah, who cares? <laughs> so we get this, uh, that's basically what drives the story, and then he ends up having, a, forming a bit of a romantic relationship. There's a very, like, Star Trekian Kirk, you know, sex scene where it's like we're with them, like, at the fu- at, like, a funeral. Yeah. And then it cuts to, like, them putting on clothes, <laughs> like, in Evans's apartment yeah it's very like, yeah. implied that they had sex um but the, the, the device he uses like getting for the back that last with with his, uh, the attempt on his life like the killer's above his uh apartment on the roof yeah, yeah. and there he's in there doing something maybe he's like oh he's maybe composing and some of the plaster off the ceiling falls yeah and it's so awesome that the audience sees this yeah and the audience well, he may not put one on one together, but it's because the killer's up up on the ceiling of the roof, walking around, looking through his his um, skylight, his skylight down at him. So it's like it's very like suspenseful yeah. Hitchcockian way for us because you know the old Hitchcock thing where he says, you know, um, I'm getting too off topic, where he says that there's two people at a cafe sitting there and then uh, a bomb goes off underneath the table. Okay, that's shocking, but. That's it. It's just a shock. But if you do the same scene again and you show the audience that bomb underneath the table and then the suspense of just the two people talking about in baseball, he's yeah. like, you know, the audience will like, get the hell out of there. It builds the suspense factor up. So it's brilliant how he does that. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly a master of his craft. But this idea of this lost memory, which is a repeating theme or this incorrect memory or whatever, this clue is what drives Hemings through the story. And then it, it just becomes like him basically trying to solve the, the 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 murder and at the same time the murderer is tying up the loose ends at the same time 
like killing every, killing the like the other guy that's involved in the paranormal uh, d- demonstration. Yeah, her assistant. He, he gets killed. Like you by said the he sh- finds this, you, as the you, the uh, he gets killed by the getting like uh, almost getting what do you call that curbed yeah, on the yeah. side of a it's horrible death. Uh, the book that you brought up that he that the, the re- that the record leads him to this book. That oh. this woman wrote about the house, a local history of the mur- unsolved murders, or the, the... she gets murdered before yeah. you can in get the middle. There. Yeah, that's another scary scene where she lives like out in the Italian countryside. So she, you know she's got this nice little villa on the on a on a main road, and she's talking to like some elderly lady. She walks in, she gets scared and runs out, and it's very scary. The elderly woman's already like on the bus leaving, and she's yeah, like, "Oh, I'm yeah. by myself." And then she gets killed by boiling water. Yeah, yeah. That's very freaky. That whole scene there. So um, basically, that's the major. That's the plot. Going back to uh, the idea of this like lullaby children theme. It because, like we said, becomes both diegetic, non-diegetic. It's a part that it drives the plot, yet it's also part of the music. It becomes the clue to the audience that something's going to happen. It becomes, a, in some ways, a motivation for the killer. It's very reminiscent of things like M. Yeah, you for know, example, which the, we talked about in our Mad Love cast, with where the the killer will whistle in the Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. That that theme becomes. A very important thing because people re- associate that with the killer. Where uh, you know when they're looking for him, when he's around, that's what he's w- whistling. The idea of that they need to revisit, they need this trigger thing. The killer needs this trigger. This needs to play this to get in the mindset to do it. Plays needs to play this piece of music to then be able to commit murder is very reminiscent of Peeping Tom, yeah. which is, in that case, it's the camera. He needs to be looking through the camera. Which is a movie that we've talked about. Which we've brought up. And we're probably going to do a whole cast on at some point. And then, Great horror movie from 59 or 58, English horror 60. movie? 60. And then the idea of this music being part of these two different aspects of the film is totally Leone. Leone. Yeah. It's for a few dollars more. It's the harmonica in... Once by time in the West. Oh, um, it's used brilliantly for a few dollars more, which is uh, you and I ours, our favorite of the Spaghetti trilogy, which yeah. we we always say gets really underhanded. People love the Fistful of Dollars, the first one, and love the third one, but come on, the second one's yeah, yeah. amazing. So it's a very it's this device yeah. that is very it's brilliant. It's very yeah. Leone, and, um, and 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 like undoubtedly, likely influenced by Leone, yeah. Argento's use of it. I had a, I just had an idea, a thought that escaped me now. Now that. also what becomes if we flash forward, you know, and there's some other things we can backtrack on if we need to, but if we flash forward at the end Oh, of, I'm sorry. Yeah. We as the audience, we hear this theme at the very opening. Yeah. In that flashback of Christmas Day where we see that murder in shadow. That's that's what we hear this. So this that's how that piece retains with us. Yeah. So there's a clue that's getting back that we don't know why to that first shot of the movie of this yeah. murder that we saw. And but it's also playing on our expectations of an audience. That first scene is playing on our expectations of the audience created by films like Psycho and Peeping Tom of childhood trauma. Yeah. Um a very Freudian kind of look on things. We see these children, this child's feet. We actually don't know the sex of the child. No, we don't. No, um, we just see stockings and shoes, you know. And so, and we hear this theme, and we and we have this, we hear this theme throughout the thing, and us as an audience make this connection that that child is very likely to be the killer now. To be the killer, yeah. Childhood trauma is 
Huge in horror. Huge in horror. Like I said, yeah. Psycho, Peeping Tom. Uh, the German's Tin Drum that I brought up a little while ago. That movie, it's always a this, good basis of... Uh, and in this movie, we have both the child that witnesses this murder at Christmas. And we also have this girl who whose dad owns the keys to the house, who she's kind of fucked this up. This is weird. Now, this is... So what happens is... Um, he um, Hemmings, our lead, gets in, a picture in the book that we have discussed already. The authors, like who ends up getting lore. killed, there's she, a picture of a house. Yeah, so he's trying to figure out where this house is. So he's running around, uh, I guess, the suburbs of of Rome to find this house, and he finally finds the house, what it looks like. And he, you know, and he he goes to the gentleman who owns the house, and he's like, "Oh, you know, I don't really own it. I'm the caretaker. Somebody else. It hasn't been owned in years since there was a big traumatic incident that happened there. Whoever else owns it's been out of the country for years. He might be dead, but I'm taking care of it. You know, he's like, can I see into it? And he's like, yeah. So he gives him the keys. Now this guy, the caretaker, owns his daughter, this little redhead girl. He's an owner, but he has a daughter. <laughs> oh, well, he's the caretaker, but he, yeah, he, I know, see, uh, so he, he said he owns the daughter. He, I'm sorry. he owns this daughter. Yeah, he, I'm sorry, he has a daughter and. At first, I thought it was almost like a, a sexual relationship with the, you know, it's very much like the, the girl's weird and she's acting weird, so maybe he has some sort of yeah. incestual relationship. So the, the Hemmings leaves to go look at the house, and he looks down at the daughter, and he just slaps her in the face. He slaps her a couple times. Like, yeah. I told you not to do that again. And you're like, Jesus, he's being an asshole. Like, this is child abuse. She runs away to what? She goes to show, he's going to show He's like, the, my daughter will take you to, will show you where the house yeah, is. Yeah, and while he leaves, when he turns, he, like, slaps the shit out of her. Like, I told you never to do this again. And she runs away. And then it cuts to this shot of him. Well, Hemmings is like, what did you do? She's like, oh, he's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So then they <laughs> he leave. He does that sometimes. He leaves, and then it cuts down, and this is a very controversial, for a lot of aspects, the reason why, yeah. uh, this scene that was put back in, It's and it cuts to his face, and then the camera... The picked father's the, face. Father's face, the caretaker, right before the scene ends, and it zips right down to his feet and on the ground on the gravel is this little lizard that has it looks like a, a hairpin yeah like a pushpin or a something. pushpin stuck through this little poor lizard's head and it's withering and pain on the ground yeah yeah so the implication is that this little freaking bitch is you know this is happening she's doing this and we know now um because of 21st century uh psychology that this is like the you know, serial killers start yeah, by doing yeah. this harming animals. This, of course, is a real animal. This was this is the seventies, and of course, freaking Italians on top of it. <laughs> we've we've talked about how you know Italians were very unforgiving towards animals in these movies. Yeah. So they did this, and this was controversial. So this was cut right out of a lot of releases. Well, a lot of these things in the aspect of this movie, um, and there's no reason. It's that's like a throwaway. That's not central to the plot. No, but it's an interesting character development in that what we find out later about the girl. But what I will say before we get to that is that there are these things in the movie. The movie, Argento's way of approaching the movie is very much like it's a nightmare. Maybe not so much as in terms of being surreal like Suspiria is like a nightmare. But um, Certainly, what's the movie? With, uh, is it Phenomenon where they're, she's... Jumping in the water and going yeah with the maggots and stuff. Well, well she goes she goes into this little pool oh that's water. inferno inferno yeah. and there's like this entire like Victorian house underwater yeah yeah that's you know it's very much like you're saying very nightmarish but he becomes you know he he's viewing this through the way he shoots the movie with all the movement um, the extreme like macro photo movement through all these like little trinkets that the killer has yeah there's that's a and the idea of 
like when we enter the theater in the beginning of the movie, it's like it's the cameras pushing in and the curtains open and For we us. move in. Um, and then at the end of that scene too, another, the camera comes back up the hall and the curtains are brought back. And uh, when, when in the scene that you're talking about, while Hemmings is playing the piano and the killer enters his apartment and he manages to close the door and the killer whispers to him, we enter that scene through the curtain of his apartment. Yeah. Like the curtain opens up and the camera comes in. It's drawing attention that like there's something not realistic about this movie. And there's all these little elements that Argento puts in, like the lizard, like the dogs fighting. Yeah, there's another which scene. Is a, which is an homage to The Exorcist. Yeah. All these little things that are just there to create like an unsettling atmosphere for the viewer. Yeah, because, keep, keep you on your toes as a viewer. Like, there's something fucked up about this movie. Yeah, and it progressively gets worse because there's a scene they just cut to like as a bumper, these two dogs just fighting in the street, which lasts like seven to ten seconds, and that's it. And that's the other... Uh, very um, controversial act of animal cruelty. They say that was cut right out after its initial release and hadn't seen the light of day till that and the lizard scene were put back in. In Exorcist, there's dogs fighting. So this is a very deliberate... Yeah. uh, Argento and Freakin were friends by that point. Um, it's also like an homage as well. It's a little as, homage. There's but actually, it unsettles the audience, like you're saying. Sure. I you mean, it's, it does. It creates this tension. Yeah, you don't know. Like, the, like it's racking up, the like you're saying, the tension. And um, he does a lot of great, really close up things there's when they put the record on to listen to the uh when he buys the record of the of the uh, lullaby some really great f- it looks like they built the record player like they built like um what's his face's ear from Wrath of Khan you know they built like a huge prop <laughs> yeah, yeah. i mean they they get in there so detailed with the record needle going around the record it looks like it's huge yeah. you know and then you're saying as well there's these weird bumpers that you don't really understand what they are between scenes of this like dark room and there's just this table and it's very close up of all these trinkets where it's like, it's like some, marbles some thread a little, a little a baby little, doll yeah you know and you don't know well, what they're it's playing into this aspect within the background the lullaby La, yeah, yeah so you're like what the hell it's is this? playing into this aspect of the childhood trauma and that the the gloves uh the black gloves around the table too zoom very close and that the cu- and that the killer needs to be brought back to like this childhood state to be able to c- commit the murders. That's why they're. That's why, as an audience, we're assuming that that's what is going on with the record, and and the, it's like it's almost like it's uh, like, a, it's it's like a, psychosis, the split personality, almost. Yeah, like Norman Bates with uh, his mother, or even with years later, nineteen eighty, New York Ripper, aka Don't Torture Duckling, where the killer is like, I want to kill you, quack quack quack. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like it's weird. Uh, we have and. Um, this idea, these, the, and it's, I mean, the way the photograph is amazing. They use, for those kinds of shots, they use this thing called the snorkel, which was like a very, at the time, a very new, like, fiber optic style camera to shoot all that stuff. So Argento always very into technology. Yeah. You know, print like uh, in the '96 Stenhall syndrome. There's a lot of CGI in it, like uh, that, because that was you know cutting edge right there of like a bullet entering yeah. and going through the but body. But even so Tenib- all that. Tenebrae with. You know the um, the tracking shot of the outside of the apartment. If you've seen Tenebrae, there's this like it's always quoted as being an Argento like you know th- technological kind of like achievement of like this giant tracking shot that goes like up this up down this apartment building from goes from the window of an apartment building then down the building across the building yeah, you to know, another window. Yeah, and there's isn't there another one too? It's, uh, it's almost is it one of either Bird with the Crystal Plumage or. Um, 
the next one where it's the you know a lot nowadays in football games they have these um these autonomous cameras set up on wires yeah, yeah. so you can get like you know it'll come down it'll get you right in the mix of the action it'll come up and isn't that in there's a there's like well suspiria has has like a a camera on a zip line that's what it must be yeah, as yeah. the as the blind going through like the a blind courtyard pianist is walking through the courtyard and being attacked by um, like a bird or something and opera has like a, a swirling like a a a, a, a crow attached to a camera on a crane and as the crow flies around the camera follows this yeah crow you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, also because the uh they end up killing that bird in the um in the uh bird cage yeah. in this movie and that looked like it was a real bird they killed because yeah. when it drops on the ground you see it relaxing it's it like, looks like it's fake blood but it it's a real like fucking bird you know they just, just like stabbed it dropped some paint onto a yeah, bird yeah and because the bird's relaxing you're like jesus can you stop with all the killing of the animals here but you bring up a good point with the with the setting this up that this is not reality this is almost like a nightmare as the movie goes on this almost explains away a lot of this co uh conscious camera movements yeah. where it's like you as a viewer within your dream or looking at someone else's dream or nightmare or seeing things that are not privy to the person and that's well like the doll yeah oh my scene. gosh there's a scene yeah near the end so we got to keep this propelling because we're running out of time so there's a scene where and that's horrific where this doll comes out and it just looks like a little person with a mask on yeah. and it's like a, like a ventriloquist doll it comes running out and they hit it over the head it falls and yeah. its head breaks open it ends up being like an autonomous yeah like a like a little like wind-up doll but I, <laughs> i've never seen something that intricate like that but it's the face of it is almost um like the saw face yeah. now you know that kind of uh, that uh whatever that per yeah. killer wears it's definitely, you know, and it's in like a little suit. It's almost like Char a Charlie McCarthy. It's you know? a completely irrational and illogical device for the movie. There's no reason it, for it, but it there. works because it, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's 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 really bringing up the tension in the audience to just really get them on the edge of their seat. So um, the author's killed. Uh, but uh, you're saying Hemmings goes into the house. Yes, the Hemmings. So the, the the little girl brings him into the house after we see the reveal of the little she's killing animals. He goes into the house. He's looking around, and then he catches on the wall, plastered over is like a little mural, and he starts doing with his hands. And I yeah. commented to you like, Jesus, he's which that kill entire his scene is uh, no dialogue. He's experimenting through this house. Goblin score, which is essentially a blues riff. Yeah. Through the and so it's like another like kind of completely something that shouldn't work for the film yeah. works so well and that it, that particular song even when i was interviewing people from the book nathan barr who wrote you know the music for cabin fever and all this thing he's like well like look at goblin he's like a guy's exploring a house to a blues song yeah it works it wrecks up the, and it's it's funny because in script logic he's exploring the house and he leaves he's like i want to come back at night when it's much more scary and he comes yeah. back at night and he's in there and they, he he finds this mural he starts using his fingers and I'm, I told you he's, geez, he's gonna kill his nails with that and he, yeah. he, he takes it off and, and he's, it's this mural of someone being stabbed at other side and it looks it's like a childhood child drawing uh, basically it looks like a child holding a bloody knife that's stabbing and, and, someone and, and, and then someone with a like a standing over him with a big stab wound. yeah and then he leaves and then what the audience sees he doesn't see is that like I don't know something happens more well, of the plaster yeah. falls and then there's a third person uh, behind which, the person being stabbed. It's kind of brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, and then uh, we have, uh, what is it? The, the, uh, the juvenile is caught, and the juvenile, there. And, and uh, oh no, the little girl. It's the little redhead. He goes, they go to the... The little redhead's caught for something, and then remember they ask her... Well, they go to his apartment. They go to like the guy who has the little girl. They go to their house, oh, and the, he the, the sees the drawing. Yeah. 
And Temming sees that she redrew that. He's like, where did you where did you see this? Yeah. You couldn't have seen it in the house. He starts. <laughs> He's like, and the father's like, she just makes that shit up. She's fucking nuts. Yeah, he, she kills animals. I love her. <laughs> and she then confesses that she saw this drawing at the library at the Da Vinci School. A, a closed uh, Da Vinci, it's a Da Vinci Catholic school, a prep school that has been closed now. They have, for some Nearby. reason, yeah, they've gone in there, ransacked the place, but then when they go in, it's very neat. And yeah. she says she saw this drawing, so her, um Hemings and the reporter go into this this Da Vinci school that's closed, looking around. And for a place that's been closed for a lot of years, they keep very detailed records. And they yeah. find like the uh, they find like the archive. They open the archive up, and a sub archive. There's like children's drawings. They start looking <laughs> through. The, then there's like years of children's drawings, and they get to like what year they're looking like the late fifties or whatever. And they find a drawing. They start going through the drawings, and then I think he leaves, and it's just the reporter going through the drawings. Yeah. Or they well, separate. No, she leaves because then she walks into the classroom, and there's a someone hanging drawn on the blackboard yeah and then which is very much like um when the, the what spooks the author when the author said we're getting back to a second ago when she's in her lonely villa she says goodbye to the elderly woman she walks into her house and there is a one the a baby doll, doll hanging yeah. in from a noose and that's when she's like shit i better not stay here alone she runs out and the old woman's already on the bus leaving so a lot of these elements from this person's childhood yeah. that we're seeing in these bump shots on this table to the music are now becoming played uh, in the yeah, movie. I mean, we, you know, obviously, we there's a lot of details that have gotten left out, and yeah. so like, if you haven't seen the movie, like, even if we as we wind down, there's going to be parts of it that don't make sense because there's stuff that we just kind of we didn't go into because yeah, there's so much to talk talk about that this wasn't really a castle where we could sit there and like go scene by scene for every thing or we'd be here for like eight yeah. hours so and it's not the type of movie to do that like yeah you, know, you could do that with a like commando what's interesting like about it is more nuanced um the one thing that is kind of interesting about it is that like throughout the movie we do see that the killer puts on eyeliner so it does play yeah. against the fact that maybe this isn't i mean i guess because it's ambiguous as to whether whether the child is a man or woman I mean, it's it's always we assume that the killer is a man, and that's almost to our misogyny or to our lead character's misogyny that it's a, it's assumed that it's a yeah. man doing all these killings. But there's a lot of kind of sexual ambiguity throughout the whole movie. Yeah, we find out our friend Carlo, who's Car the drunk. Carlo is gay, and his lover is a transvestite who's actually played by a woman uh, in the movie. Her name is. Um, uh, Geraldine Hooper, but they just give her like a little pencil mustache, yeah. you know. Um, in, in a lot of ways, like Dario Nicolodi's character, uh, Gianna, the reporter, she's masculine to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, she's they arm wrestle. She wins the she, arm she, wrestling she, yeah, match. Yeah, she they arm wrestle. She's twice. very aggressive in a way that isn't very feminine. Um, so there's a lot of sexual ambiguity, and when we later, you know, in some ways, you can assume that the feet we see. Or maybe a woman's, a girl's feet in the the child's feet, it, it ends up being a boy, and we find out. Spoiler alert! We're gonna hold start. on. If you, <laughs> if, if, if you haven't seen this movie up until now, this is one of these with like a twist ending, much like I would say, like The Sixth Sense, sort of. Yeah, so yeah. if you're at all interested in seeing this movie, we highly recommend you stopping this down right now, going and seeing the movie, and then picking right up back here at this point because we're gonna spoil this. Okay, so ready? Okay. So hope you've if left. You're I hope you're if back. You're, if you're listening from this Shame point on, on you. it's yeah, your fault. You should know this. So spoiler. So we find out that you know, in the context of the movie, well, you we know, should go in order, right? Yeah. If we if we 
we're led to believe now that Carlo is the killer. There's a big reveal that it's Carlo. He's got a gun, and it's like, oh, it was him that was the child that he saw. You know, he he's killed. Like, I his... told you to fucking leave town. Yeah, you know, I've been. This is why he's drinking. This is why he's uh, he's having this weird relationship with a transvestite because yeah. he's you know he's a killer and he's been killing all these people. And it's like you know he's got a gun. He's like you know I told you get out of here. The he's cops to... show up and then that create a diversion. A lot of funny things happen with that uh, detective earlier in the movie. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of funny little jokes and stuff. But the cops show up. There's a diversion. Carlo, Carlo gets away. He runs. Uh, Dario Nicolodi gets stabbed at some point. Uh, with a switchblade, she's like, oh, die. And so then Carlo gets away. Carlo, Carlo gets away. And then <laughs> this fucking, oh. like... Tractor trailer. It's a huge. It's a whole. It's a garbage truck going down the road at night because they're picking up garbage and they're chatting. Of course, they're not paying attention to what's going on. And in the back of the garbage is it a garbage truck. I thought I don't know. It's a back tractor trailer. Originally, truck. I thought it was, but as you watch more, I don't, it just looks like maybe a like truck an eighteen wheeler that, that has wire that's, that's back. You know, like the the metal. Uh, the big support things that you put inside, like concrete. Yeah, the concrete, like uh, the metal ties that you put in the ones that have like little wire wrapped around, you know, the tension rods to to to, to stabilize like uh, proper concrete. They're carrying like just big strands of that, and one of them is kind of like, yeah, come about and it's hooked. That's dragging on the street. So Carlo serendipitously runs out. Truck goes by. They're not paying attention. He his ankle gets hooked by it. He, he starts dragged getting dragged, and it's a horrific death because he's like, ah, and he's trying to call getting them. Getting knocked into the sidewalk. He's uh, getting the, yeah, the, to, to, the, to the gutters. Curb. He's trying to call, and then you're cutting back to the two guys. They're not paying attention, and they're driving it pretty fast, so the freaking back of the truck's sliding around, and he's getting whipped around, and his, his ass and back is getting grabbed, just dragged to a horrific death on the, con on the asphalt until you say that he, he gets uh, slammed against the, uh, the gutter, and he's like, oh, they finally <laughs> That, what do they realize? I think they realize it and they stop. They stop quick. They stop. They run out to get him. And then since the, the uh, ass of the tractor it's like trailer truck They start truck to is, make a turn. So the turning. And so they see it. They, in the they realize back it and rear they, view mirrors. So they stop as they're turning. So, so then the, tr the back of the truck's still in the intersection. Yeah. So and then like they, they get out the stop. And then you see from his point of view, he's all fucked up. And he's laying in the road. And you see in the background, just of course, there's just a car. Two lights come in the frame. And runs over his head. Yeah, the, that, the, yeah, the, the guy tries Squash to stop. Squashes the watermelon. Squashes his head right there, and you're like, Jesus, what a horrific death to a horrific killer. You think the movie's over. The movie's over. Uh, you know? And then Hemmings is walking back through the square to get to where he lives or whatever. This, this is the, really and then he stops. And he looks like, at the Edward, second. He looks at the Edward Hopper uh, diner that's closed, and he's thinking there for a minute. He's thinking about all that's happened. And he says, wait a minute. He says, for fuck's sake, I was talking to Carlo when it happened. Yeah, yeah. So fucking... And then I'm, I I'm saw giving Carlo Car and I saw the killer. Yeah, I'm giving Carlo time. an alibi. So it's like it couldn't, have been, it couldn't have been Carlo because it was Carlo at the same time. So then he doesn't he... He runs back into the apartment. The original, the original psychic's apartment. He runs up there to the apartment. He walks in and he's looking around and he realizes... Is that when he realizes that, that his... Uh, As he walked by, he's in the hallway, but then there's like an adjacent hallway, a perpendicular hallway. Where all the paintings are. And this is why he kept thinking that something was wrong, a painting was taken off or whatever. As he walks by, there is a mirror that um, that he, he can see when he walks by that is, is reflecting the opposite end of that hall. And there was a person standing against that back wall, yeah. against a painting that blended kind of into the painting. So when he walked by, he looked at the mirror, the mirror reflection. And assumed that, that it was a painting. It was part of that painting, but it was a woman standing there. He thought the mirror was a painting in itself. And now there was something odd about 
that painting because it was the reflection of another painting with a with a woman's head in it. Yeah, and the woman's head was gone. And, and we, we find out this will be a real fucking surprise to you because we haven't even mentioned her as a character. Yeah. But Carlo's mother is a character in the movie. Yeah, it's <laughs> Carlo's freaking mother who's the killer in the trench coat the whole time. And it's it's a it's a great reveal because they, you know, dun, 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 dun. and then like, he he makes the realization he slowly turns around. Yeah. Now this and is a, she's there yeah. in the trench coat. And here's another device that is that is a Leone used in uh, the two westerns we already mentioned for a few dollars more and oh, well, once upon a time in the west once upon a time in the west something that was new not really used in thrillers at the time which argento introduced in the thriller is that we now have a flashback that explains like why this is happening yeah you know we find out that the uh, the her she's the mother of carlo and there's a scene in the kitchen, and it's oh, Christmas, he, and her husband's like, "We got to take you back to the hospital. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's for your own She's good. like, you, "I won't do it." And it gets back to that original scene of the Christmas tree, where it's Carlo's out playing by the Christmas tree as a young boy with his stockings and his little school outfit. Mom's in the kitchen with dad. Dad comes in. Dad's like, "Hey, you know, we're t- you got to go back." And she's like, "I don't want to go back." And he's like, "Well, you're gonna have to go back. It's for your own good. We'll talk about it later." And then he he walks out of the room to go talk to Carlo by the Christmas tree. She grabs a butcher knife and then runs up behind him, and he's like, "Hey, Carlo, come over." And then she stabs him in the back, and it's confusing because at the beginning of the movie, it's like shadows, multiple stabs, yeah, yeah. and then he's like, ah, and then she drops the. He, what does he take the knife out himself? Something. He happens. falls on the ground, takes the knife out himself. The knife falls in front of Carlo. So basically, Carlo witnessed his mom killing his father. Yeah. It is. And then he walks over and picks up the knife and looks at the. Ah, ah, and then the which, the which is the drawing that we see. Yes, and it's the and then you see like a little nice like a three M. Of really, really red blood yeah, going yeah. down the knife, and he's like, and he's so traumatized by this. We are led to believe he's either suppressing the memory, yeah, or he's no, he's trying it's, to, or he's just hi- he's, he's keeping, hiding it, keeping from- the secret. Because in essence, when he picks up this knife, he's now become an accomplice to the murder. Yeah, in, in, in he's a sense, poor child, you know, in a technical aspect. So now he kind of knows what's going on, and. uh you know, and he's basically now going to kill Hemmings so that his mother doesn't get caught. And I think we also forgot the whole point was when um, Hemmings is looking at the drawing, he realizes um, with the painting that, there, that there's a secret room in the old house. Yeah. So he runs back to the house and he's like, how can I have been so stupid? There's a, in the, in the picture he's been looking there's at the whole window. time, there's a window that's now not in the new house. It's, it's no longer there. So he... Uh, in a very freaky scene, like goes out on the side of the house and he starts with like a, like a, uh, almost like a tire iron and he's breaking where the window would be and he opens it up and he's able to get in. And lo and behold, it is our flashback um, room, Christmas, that Christmas morning, Christmas tree still there. Everything is still there like it hasn't been touched in 30 yeah. years. And there is a dead body that's yeah. mummified. It's like a very uh, Poe. Like yeah. Walled it in. The wall, yeah. Walled the, the dead body. The, the wall of uh, Amontasado, Amanta, Amanta, the, the cask of Amantas, um, whatever that one is where the guy gets walled of in. Amandasante. Yeah, oh, of Amantasante. <laughs> the, the cast of Amantasante. Um, you know, gets roll, walled in by an evil. Um, uh, what's his face? Uh, but, 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 uh, but,
Doesn't yeah, I forget that I was going to make a joke. Moving forward. Anyway, that, that joke fell on the floor. Ron Silver. It's a, it's a uh, evil Ron Silver who wants to take over Armand Asante's roles. God bless Ron Silver. That's a that's a really low um, in the weeds joke. Anyway, so he realizes that in this house that there has been a murder that was committed. It was the Christmas tree there. It, it's been no one's known about it for how many years because it was walled. I don't know how that she walled up at the window and she did yeah. all the the. It's very handy. Yeah, all that all that masonry work. <laughs> so that happens right before he. I guess that's the realization. Then he he makes the realization. Like I got to go check the apartment. It couldn't have been Carlo. And then this is where we have this flashback where the mother's killing the father in front of Carlo. Yeah. Carlos, and this explains why Carlo's a drunkard. It explains why um, Carlo is having all this weird sexual tension where he doesn't know if he's gay or he's straight. He's I mean, hanging presumably. out with Presumably, I mean, it's you know, 70s point of view. Yeah, who knows <laughs> what's going on. As well as, you know, he's, he's been hiding the whole many years if he knows consciously or subconsciously for his mom, who's a killer and who's a nut. She's an yeah. actress in the movie, isn't she? Yeah, she's like a, re she's like a retired actress. Yeah, and, and she was like a 70s. A 30, uh, I'm sorry, a 30s, a real life. A 1930s, like, Hollywood kind of starlet. And it's certainly said, so the they pictures we see pictures. of her on the wall in the scene where she tells Marcus that are her as a younger actor. Earlier in the movie. Movies and yeah, stuff. and it's, yeah, they're great, like, 8x10s of her with famous actors from the 30s and 40s. So it's like, oh, that's really cool, and you can really tell. So um, come to find out, then... She she attacks him in the house. He makes the realization shit she, that was the the reflection I saw was her. She's in the trench coat. We understand why Carlo, when he sees um, Hemmings looks through the after the initial psychic murder down and, the, and he sees the trench coated person leaving. Carlo sees that person. That's the reason why Carlo says, "Oh, I didn't see anybody," because oh, yeah. he must have realized covers, it was his mom. Covers it up. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, "Oh, I didn't see the person." And that's the, and then we also realize that it's the mom doing it the whole time. The mom is killing all these women aside from. Um, there's one man he kills, which is the psychic's uh, you know, assistant. Yeah. But it's just she's doing all these murders to try to cover everything up because she's a freaking nutcase. And then how does she get... get um, well, they oh, struggle. So they struggle. They break out into the hallway, and then there's this great device which is used, which the co... Um, writer. The co-writer, uh, 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 Bernardino... Bernardo? Bernardi, Bernard, Bernardino. <laughs> Bernardio uh, Zapponi Zapponi says that in his I think it's the actual building he yeah. says in his building there was have, a similar yeah one of these uh, cool elevators these lifts that you know you see like in Wolf with Jack Nicholson where it's like in the middle of the stairs where you can see through and it's one of these old fashioned ones where it's all like you know um, gates that close and you have up and down and it's very nice and art deco-y yeah. so there is a struggle on the hallway he throws her uh, like up against the shaft. Yeah, in her, she has a like a nice metal locket on that gets lodged into uh, gets the, stuck the gating of the yeah and then of the not enough elevator. that she's stuck there. He's like you know you're terminated, fucker. Hasta <laughs> <laughs> la vista, yeah. baby, bitch, bichado. <laughs> uh, and then he hits the button and the elevator starts coming. And then of course since goes the elevator down. goes down, her necklace is stuck and I don't know why the chain doesn't break. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's very so, powerful. They didn't. They it's platinum. It's really resilient <laughs> they steel. Made, Jewelry to last back then. And uh, she goes down, and then it, 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 it's, it's disgusting. She, gets, she pulls, her body gets pulled to the gate of the elevator shaft as the elevator's pulling on her necklace, and it basically chops her head yeah, off. Yeah, decapitates her. You see all this blood appear, and then it just, you see, uh, as a close-up, it, it, rip, it, it rip, rips right rip, through her neck. Rip into her neck, and then we see that, like, the... the then we just see like the bloody necklace going down. Yeah, the elevator. it's brilliant. The bloody necklace just sitting there, strand all bloody. And then at the end of the movie, you see Carlo. Her body must fall on the floor, and all her she must 
bleed out. And there's a pool of blood with Carlo's reflection. And Marcus. I'm sorry. Marcus's reflection. I'm confusing everybody. And then that's how the movie ends. With like a freeze frame of Marcus's reflection in a in a pool of blood and you in the original cut the italian cut it's you, you could see him reacting like opening up his you know closing his eyes blinking so it's still there but in the american version which they kept up until the i guess 2009 the anchor bay release is a freeze frame with the credits over yeah but and of course in typical argento fashion and i never see this with other italian movies or i just haven't noticed it the credits start to roll and it says you have been watching oh really which is like Suspiria. You have been watching Suspiria. Yeah, stay and, tuned for more. <laughs> it's like a credit rolls up. You have been watching Profondo Rosso or Deep Red or anything. And uh, then we have the played with the, the classic Goblin theme. Um, which for me, big deal. That score was a big deal for me. That theme was one of the things that fueled my imagination of horror movie scores and what led this to particular me. theme yeah yeah and then which eventually led to me pursuing writing a book about horror film music was two very specific things john carpenter and uh his music and then goblin's music which was originally that score is what turned me on to goblin's wow. music and then you then we can get into when your when your book is finally released we can get yeah. into proper about the nuances in that, but that led you to write this book. So we talked about the alternate versions already. So, but this movie comes out, uh, and it is revered. Uh, everyone loves it. I mean, there is a, it's hilarious. This old crotchety New York Times reporter uh, from the day he calls it a bucket of axe murder movie cliches, and he calls Argento himself a director of incomparable incompetence. But then everybody else actually praises it, and they say, you know, this is a transitional work that shows him going, like we said, from the whodunits to the supernatural horror, and uh, it, it it really is regarded, we've said, as like people influences either musically, thematically, uh, the themes, the horror movies. And this, it's really, had he, I mean, he was already a pretty big star, but this movie put Argento. Him, yeah, Argento was already a pretty big star with his first three movies, but this really put him over top. This movie, and most people regard this as his best movie. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree. This is a, this is basically, you know, all his ideas that he, he kind of plays with uh, before and after, he is able to best... Um, uh, Clarity. He's able to yeah, put him yeah. on the table for I an audience. I think here in America, Suspiria in the nine in the late nineties, Suspiria started popping up on lists of like the hundred greatest movies of yeah, all time. Yeah, he had a huge resurgence. Horror movies of all time, and because of the style and the paranormal aspect of it, it became the go-to Italian horror movie to put on like the the best horror movies of all time list. So I think th- you know within the last twenty years, Suspiria has probably gained popularity here in America as being like the quintessential Argento movie but really Profondo Rosso is like the quintessential Argento movie yeah and it should be regarded that way and it is I mean you know for me Argento is such a big thing for me that I like most of his movies like I love most of his movies um, more than even a lot of people would give credit to I mean there are in recent years there have been movies that aren't that great but uh so for me it's because he's one of my favorite directors it's always like i can't pick a favorite but uh, deep red is definitely uh, there are days where deep red is my favorite well you know it's a shiny it's definitely in my top you know three or so it's it's a shining example to show somebody who's never seen an argento movie maybe you know to give this to him as an example or a lot of his earlier stuff it really is kind of the quintessential because it's that period of like coming off of the the animal trilogy and then going into the rest of his career it's upping the gore factor it's kind of like that perfect bridge between 
early Argento and then like mid yeah. going into like that mid period of Argento, which is fascinating in terms of thing that he, things that he starts doing. You know, always be known for his camera work. Here, it's like not as uh, stylized as some of the other movies in terms of like production design and things that he does, but constant camera movement is uh, it's a staple. It, of his, it, almost. Yeah, and it's 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 beautifully done, better than you would expect. Yeah, given the time period, the, the amount of like sure. dolly tracks they had to put down. I mean, this is this is pre steady cam. This is like pre perfection of the steady cam. Yeah. So it's amazing. Uh, so the what he's doing is is really amazing, and even the even the stuff that is handheld is like you would think with Steadicam. I yeah. mean, some of the stuff where it's clearly they can't be a dolly inside the apartments and stuff. Sometimes it's really. Uh, I mean, the guy Luigi Cavaller, K U V E I L L E R, really needs. Uh, recognition for the, his job as DP on this because it's beautifully shot. I mean, everybody's with the obsession of steady cam and like that's what creates energy. Like you can have camera movement that isn't shitty looking. Yeah. Like that creates energy, creates momentum. Yeah. And uh, everything. Look at it, Arson Wells at the beginning of Touch Evil, like that whole sequence. It's, yeah. You can it's, you can use it if it's used right. It's it's. And it's this is a perfect exemplified. example of like shaky handheld bullshit camera work is not needed to create energy that this like you can move a camera with smoothness and it's it's exciting and it doesn't necessarily get in the way of things and it propels um, the story it's really a beautifully shot movie yeah um the, I guess the other thing we forgot to say is that his first draft of the script was 500 pages. Yeah. And then the, he, he then after his father and brother were like, hey, you got to cut this down a little yeah. bit. And, and, they also didn't really, and they also didn't really understand what he was going yeah. for for a lot of it. But luckily they trusted him. Um, this came out of, like we said, of course, UK didn't even didn't even get a UK release because of the, the, the strict laws in the UK. It was billed in Japan as Suspiria 2, even though Suspiria hadn't even been... Uh, released yet so i guess yeah. it didn't come out till a while later because this is 75 suspiria 77 um and in 2010 oddly there was a there was planned a little remake oh, about romero right? yeah george romero comes claudio simonetti uh claudio uh argento um contacts romero and says hey do you want to redo a, a 3d remake of deep red and yeah. and uh, Romero's like, oh, yeah, okay, I can uh, do that. And then he contacts yeah, uh, Claudio. Says Argento, uh, Dario's on board. Who's Claudio Argento? That's his brother. That's his brother. And yeah. then yeah, and then he go. And then Romero talks to Argento, and we haven't, we never even talked about the relationship between Romero. We don't have time. Yeah. So the uh, after right after this movie, Argento goes on to help um, uh, Romero. Uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead. He's all over Dawn of the Dead. He brings Goblin in. He helps yeah. uh, get the movie released internationally. It so, yeah, so it's it's a, that's how they have a, a friendship. So Romero goes to talk to Dara, and I was like, right, "What are you talking about? I never heard of that. that. Fuck that. You, you know, go stop making. No, you're not making my movie. Um, couple so. other. You know, we talked about the dogs being a uh, bit of an homage to Exorcist. Uh, there's a scene where the killer's eye is inside darkness in the wardrobe. That's a little homage to the Spiral Staircase. Yeah. Um, the opening scene with the, uh, which we talked a lot about with the psychic recognizing somebody evil in the through psychic power is a bit of an homage to the night uh, has a thousand eyes with Edward G. Robinson. Oh yeah, who kind of sees a murder before it happens. Yeah, and the night of a thousand eyes is a great jazz song as well. And there's a, one of the murders, uh, the woman kind of I, you know, tries attempts to ID the killer, 
in uh, like a frosted over mirror with steam. Yes. And that's a little homage to the Lady Vanishes. So a couple of, you know, Argento is, he's a student of cinema. Yeah, I think he, he was a film critic, a lover of cinema. So, so he's, he's not, seen a lot of it. He's not he's working. He's like Truffaut did that, yeah. Yeah, he's not working within a bubble here. I mean, yeah. he's... Um, and that was the that was the, the the nice little cliffhanger when when the author gets killed. She she says the killer. She writes it out in steam on her on her tile. But then when the the, the steam goes away, you don't see it. Yeah. And it, they just said she was pointing oddly to the thing. And then it's a great reveal as well. And the and the other important thing for Argento, which is a very, definitely an Argentoism, is that there is truth in art. Yeah. And this is uh, this happens a lot in Suspiria. Uh, the the flowers on the wall. One of them's a thing in this movie it's the kids drawings it's the uh it's the the paintings and the mirror a stenthal syndrome is an entire movie about yeah. about art so uh that was that was the last argentoism that we didn't that i didn't get mentioned but yeah art big thing in argento moves and his protagonists are often almost almost always uh, artists, yeah, here tortured souls. Here he's a he's a musician, and uh, I think it's a photographer in *Bird with Crystal Plumage*. Often it's the artist that is that reluctant protagonist, who's, a, who's in a strange land, who has to you know figure stuff out. Uh, uh, buckets of pizza rating uh, five, five out of five, six, six <laughs> out of five, six out of five. Meat, uh, *Sleepover I, Stars*. I would give probably four out of five. I mean, Argento is literally one of my favorite filmmakers of, of all time. So. Uh, and, this and we is, can see and this it, here. And this is him at his best. So I, yeah. I mean, I have to. And if you haven't seen Profundo Rosso and you're a horror fan, you know, go see it. We've yeah. ruined it for you now. As if you a, stay as, this long. As a recommendation, personally, I'd say Ten Tenebrae is a good follow-up. I personally love Tenebrae's early '80s, uh, more of an '80s dance score, but done by three guys from Goblin. Um, it's a very uh, the plot line is very similar to Basic Instinct in a way. It's yeah. about an author. And there's murders taking place, and they suspect the author. Some great, amazing set pieces, a beautiful thing. That would be my recommendation as a, as another movie to watch. Yeah, I haven't even thought sleepover. I would think my recommendation would probably be one of his original the I animals. Know, I, I know you're a big fan of *Bird with Crystal*, Blue yeah, Mitch, like, which is which you know, is probably oh, even all three of those are great. Yeah, yeah. You know, for their own reasons. You know, so if you haven't seen any of the animal trilogies, just because you know, put just because they put stuff on the map, and he's doing a lot of good stuff. I mean, even I mean. All these, I'm a big fan of his up until probably Stenhall Syndrome, and then for me, he kind of falls off. You know? Yeah, I'm uh, a big, I the, think he makes a great comeback with Sleepless or an Italian uh, Non Hosono. Yeah. Uh, where he brings Goblin back from, you know, they broke up. He brings Goblin back in 2000 to score, uh, and he returns to the Giallo. Yeah. Uh, and does this Sleepless, which is a really underrated movie. Because yeah, a lot he, of people wrote him off by then but that's actually a really great movie because he did a movie called Giallo itself with uh, what's his face Adrian Brody Adrian Brody from like 2015 or 14 I argued that some of his movies that get trashed on if not if like he had not done them if they didn't have the Argento name people would be praising them would be they would be praising them yeah they are certainly in his catalog not that is strong but there's a couple of movies there that people kind of trash of his that yeah. are not that that had somebody else done it, people would not be as nearly as hard on them. Critical as them. I think anything up, you know, in the eighties, all that stuff he does, like the with was that was it Phenomenon with Jennifer Connolly and yeah, uh, it was just fucking Jack, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. um, not Jack Donald Pleasance. Pleasance, Donald Pleasance, and then you know what's the Carl Malden film? That's Cat of Nine Tales. Cat of Nine Tales. So it's sort of, I just go check out Dario. Sleepless, uh, Sleepless, Non Hosono has uh, Max von Sydow's in it, and that actually has a lot of ties to. 
there's act, other actors that are in Deep Red are in it, and it's shot in Turin, so it's got a and art and Goblin comes back to do the soundtrack, so it's very much kind of like you know has a lot of ties to Deep yeah. Red. Yeah, and you know, the, I guess the only thing we can stress is don't start with his recent stuff. Go back to like the '70s, '80s stuff, yeah, even yeah. '90s. I feel bad for people you know, that you know, you say like solve you know Dracula. I, or, I went to go see like Mother of Tears in the theater here in the city, so it gotten it got a theatrical release i feel bad if that and i like that movie just fine but i feel bad for the people that that's, that's his first that's, exposure. that's their yeah. first experience with so, well thank you very much for listening we hope you had a good time we have a lot of great things going on this summer please check out our facebook page check out blake score to death facebook page yeah. uh his movie his movie his book's going to be dropping very soon this summer and he's going to yeah. keep you updated it's on about pre-order stuff. for on amazon right now scored to death uh, we're on uh, Twitter at Sat Sleepovers. Uh, Score to Death is also on uh, Twitter. On, yeah, it's on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we're on Facebook. Check out our homepage, um, our Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers homepage because we have a lot of extra stuff usually with our a lot posters. of great extras on the last podcast for, on that site for Turning Mutant Ninja Turtles double feature. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of good links to things. Great, great. I, I was just talking to Blake before the podcast about how awesome I think a lyricist our uh, partners in crime are for that Turtle Power <laughs> song. I mean, it's amazing if they wrote that thing themselves. They are wordsmiths. We talk we a lot about a documentary in that, and we have a link to that documentary. Yeah, the, the, for the full documentary, and we also we had a link to um, the four the whole. Or the out of print. This is all turtles. So, the point being is we have we give you a lot of extras on our homepage. So go check that out. Check those stuff out and leave leave us a comment. You can talk to us on Facebook. You can talk to us on Twitter. And you can even leave comments themselves on our homepage. It's really nice to hear from people. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, we're gonna be here in two weeks. You know we're gonna have a great little. Uh, uh, tribute to 4th of July and we hope you're going to like it it's going to be a fun fun movie you have been listening to Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Movie Sleepovers, Sleepovers. later